This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Thank you for coming today. You know, we've been uh, talking about rewards and crowns and I think probably the greatest reward is for those that fulfill the ministry of reconciliation because we all have that ministry. How many have that ministry? <laughs> I'm so thankful for uh, Dave Smithhurst and being here with us. And we are honored. And we're more honored than we know because when you know how many people he's won to the Lord, it's just, uh, and how it all comes to pass. Getting saved, going to a Sunday school class, and the teacher saying, this week, win somebody to Jesus. Giving steps to do it. Dave writes it down, and he takes it seriously. He takes go <laughs> and be fishermen and men seriously. And he, he goes out to win the lost. And now he can tell the stories. They'll be flowing. But, um, and he wins someone to Jesus and he's never stopped. And there's major ministries that are in the earth today that he's won them to the Lord, that he ministered to them. So we're honored. He's one of the guys. I know some, uh, I was thinking the other day, how many uh, cases do I know uh, of people? I know people who raised people from the dead. I've been raised from the dead, if you know anything about my testimony, dying and <laughs> They couldn't get a pulse or heartbeat or, you know, blood pressure or anything. But Dave has raised the dead, and there's been probably about 20, I think it was 23 people I know that raised the dead. And we got one that's raised the dead here. That's enough right there. I want to hear. He's going to say I had nothing to do with it, and then... <laughs> But it's a joy to have Dave, and I want you to receive impartation, receive from the Lord the anointing on his life because he makes, the first time I picked him up, he was here years ago, and uh, how many know Australia is a long ways from here? And anyway, he, it was several years ago he was here, but I went to pick him up, and he had gone down uh, to the lobby to eat, and he comes out, and he was, uh, actually, I went in um, to get him, and he was talking with people, and he came uh, with me, and he had won five or six people to the Lord at breakfast. And I said, I want some of that. <laughs> Amen. So I want you to give love and appreciation to the gift of God, to, let's give glory to Jesus and thank Dave for being with us. Amen. I am so honored to be here uh, amongst friends. I am sometimes amongst people who are not friends, <clears throat> and I get to feel that. But, um, you know, when you're sharing Christ with someone, you get over the animosity very quickly in order to get through that person's guard and through that front that they put up to lead them to Jesus. And by the way, 
if God's ever going to use you <clears throat> to raise the dead, and I believe he is, <clears throat> it's going to catch you unawares. Because you can't preempt it. <laughs> Looking back, and I'm going to tell you about that in some detail on Sunday morning <clears throat> when the Lord used me to raise a little girl from the dead. Uh, I didn't expect it. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, the results were phenomenal. You couldn't have predicted what was going to happen as a result of everyone hearing this little girl had been raised back to life. And... Um, I was explaining to everybody, they didn't want me to preach after that, just tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. So as I did, I noticed their capacity for God growing, their expectation, their faith in God growing as a result. And I had to keep saying to them, you know, the greatest miracle is not raising somebody from the dead. The greatest miracle happens when you lead someone to Christ and they become a new creation in Christ. They change from the pathway to hell to the pathway to heaven. That's the greatest miracle. So that is really raising the dead. <clears throat> and, uh, well, the end result of that, I was driving home from that country city in South Africa thinking, God, you could have done that all by yourself. You really didn't need me. Caught me unawares. And this is what he said to me. But I needed a witness on the spot to tell the story. Oh, so I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a storyteller. <laughs> And that story has just invoked a lot of faith in people. <clears throat> and uh, you might be at a funeral service where suddenly you're motivated by some unction rising within you. Recognize that as the gift of faith. The faith of the Holy Spirit that's rising in you to move you into a zone you have never been into before. To, move, to do something your faith has never accomplished before. The faith of the Holy Spirit lifts you into that. That's the gift of faith. But you, you, you recognize that in retrospect. I thought I was having indigestion, uh, looking at this little girl's battered body, and it, but it was the unction of the Holy Spirit arising within me. And you find yourself saying and doing stuff that wasn't reproachable, but it wasn't um, normal everyday talk. And I'll, I'll explain that detail to you on Sunday morning. But... Uh, <clears throat> The people that came to Christ as a result were phenomenal. And the churches filled up in that region. Because next year I went back and I visited the ministers fraternal in that, re that city. Or conglomeration of cities. And the Catholic bishop was presiding over this. He was a very godly, spirit-filled man. And he said, Mr. Smithers, the reason we've never invited you back is you did yourself out of a job. He said, everyone has copied you. Because you didn't know that, but you equipped and you trained people. He said, as an evangelist, he said, as pastors and, and uh, apostles here, we are duty-bound to equip the saints, but you did it by way of evangelism, and um, everyone is just copying you. And the churches in this entire region are the fullest they've been in 200 years. The kingdom of God grew. And uh, I went home, just very normal. My head shrunk down to normal size. I had to be a husband again and, and a father. <laughs> when I told my family about it, they said, oh, hum, Dad, we expected something like that. <laughs> but it's, it's exciting to serve Jesus, and it's very exciting to lead people to him. I'm praying that <clears throat> what I share with you is going to be uh, like sparks thrown into combustible material, where you're going to catch fire 
and you're going to throw sparks into other combustible material and so on. That the, the, the army of soul winners is just going to grow and grow and grow. And you can't preempt that. It's like the children's game of connecting the dots. Remember that in the puzzle books, connecting up the dots. Connecting the dots in our lives, you can't see in the future. But when you look back in retrospect, you can see the people, the incidents, the things that have happened in your life that have connected you to the stage where you're at. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, move into this little session this morning. I'm going to divide these into half-hour segments. We're going to have a 10-minute break, come back, and uh, I want this to be not heavy-duty. Please don't feel any guilt, rather a challenge. Don't carry any remorse and regret, because God's not in that. He wants you to uh, be encouraged, and that's what I want to impart to you this morning, as well as some tools and strategies. And you're going to be thinking, man, that is so easy. Why didn't I do that before? Well, that's always been my thought. Why didn't I do that before? It works. So I'm going to give you some workable strategies. So you can be a persuasive witness for Jesus. You can. <clears throat> and let me start asking you a, a couple of personal questions, just to get this in perspective. What would you say is man's greatest need on the planet today? Oh, we're hearing of so much junk that's pervading this planet, like people starving, where they shouldn't be starving just because humanitarian aid was stolen by the politicians and not given to the poor. An economic plan to feed the poor and the orphans of the world. Now, some of you know that I'm involved in that, and I'm not negating the need to be in the front line of meeting those needs. I left some paperwork on the table outside with the DVDs that I ask you to take and pray for our ministry. That's what I crave and covet, people's prayers, because prayer opens doors, tears down barriers, gets into people's hearts, and causes the results. And I, I just love the thought of the scripture where we, uh, one uh, sows, one reaps, etc. People pray for ministries like ours. Uh, people will give into that ministry. People might come along on a mission trip, may, may not, but everyone is getting an equal reward. I'm the harvester at the end. And, uh, you know, it's hard work harvesting because the people don't come pounding on the door of the church because suddenly you've done an evangelism course. I want to get in. Please lead me to Jesus. You've got to go out and fish. Reap the harvest. And that's what I'm going to teach you to do. But take that paperwork and pray for our ministry. And if you'd like to receive that by email or by hard copy every quarter, just give me your email address. I will not be asking you for money because um, I crave people's prayers. Prayers meets needs even our needs. So that's what I'm asking for. Um, what about a new antibiotic to overcome all the viruses that still resist medical science? Amongst the orphans we support, there are HIV kids that it's not their fault, where they battle in the cold winters where it gets down to uh, minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit and, uh, and the snow lies a meter on the ground and suddenly the orphanage cannot pay their heating bills and they neglect to let me know. And I've got to negotiate with the power suppliers. Please, I know there are penalties to pay. Let's work out a deal where I can pay it off when winter is over. Last year, we had a five-month-long winter in Eastern Europe. Thank God we didn't lose a child. We haven't lost a child in the winter months out of 6,000 orphans we support in 22 years. And that's got me audiences with politicians expecting I've got money to give them. I said, I'm going to give you something you can't pay for, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't roll your eyes back in my company. You shut up and listen to me. Well, I can be tough with politicians. 
When they say to me, why do you support our orphans? A lot of things I could give them. Why? The love of Christ motivates me to do this. I simply say, because you don't. I support your orphans because you don't. You're going to get photographed with them to put on your election profiles before the next elections. You make promises you won't keep. <laughs> I have no time for those politicians unless I can lead them to Jesus. You're going to hear a tough side of me that some of you never thought. <laughs> and I mean these HIV kids battle. They have all sorts of illnesses, get through their immune systems, and uh, we keep them alive. And, but anyway, how about a sensational tranquilizer to help people overcome all the fears and phobias that beset mankind? I mean, you could become a millionaire just producing something like that. But of course, the greatest peace provider is a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> or a new pill to render people immune to radioactive fallout. Do you know, in the Chernobyl zone, you remember what happened in Chernobyl, northern Ukraine? Uh, 30 years ago, nuclear power station exploded. Two generations are dead because of that. And I'm supporting nine orphanages in that region where my local team fears to go in there. I say, oh, come on, you're chicken. I've been in there and nothing wrong with me. You're going in for half a day to take in the medical supplies, the clothing, the blankets, the broken down washing machines being replaced. Just get up and do it. I really got to kick a bit of butt there. And, uh, but the kids still battle. The radiation is in the soil, it's in the vegetation they eat, it's in the, the, the milk. The cows eat the grass from that area. And, uh, well, it's a lot milder now, but it's affected their immune systems. And some of those close to that Chernobyl zone, the prognosis is they don't live longer than 21, 22. And when they come to Christ as teenagers, they know, unless God intervenes, they're going to be dying before they get to their mid-twenties. They win as many people to Jesus as possible. I've never seen such fire amongst teenagers. I'm going to make up for lost time. Before I go to heaven, I'm making sure others come with me. Wow. That really shook up my local teams, who are just sometimes placid churchgoers. But man's greatest need is not for plans or pills or possessions. Man's greatest need is for the forgiveness of his sins. When you think about it, it's the sin problem that's at the root of every problem. Directly or indirectly. And that's what we're focusing at. Providing the solution to man's greatest need. And that solution is the blood of Jesus Christ. Never leave that out of your testimony. It's the blood of Christ that forgives, cleanses, pardons, justifies, even purges our conscience. From Hebrews 9, like it's verse 12. Purges our consciences from dead works to release us to serve God. Those are the regrets, the remorse. It's like... Anyone ever been stung by a bee here? Okay. A wasp is one thing gets stung by. That'll sting. But the wasp sting doesn't stay in your flesh. The bee sting has a little hook on it, a little barb. And I've seen a bee sting somebody in his hand, and the bee died because half his stomach got torn away when he was shaken off. Now, remorse and regret is like the barb of that bee sting in the flesh after the sting of sin, for example, or a mistake or a blunder. You get it sorted out, but there's the remorse. Why did I do that? Oh, I, I'm, look, I'm a sensible person. Why did I get involved in that? All right, you know you're forgiven. You try and sort out the consequences, but the regret remains. The blood of Jesus Christ purges our consciences from those remorses and regrets. And I think I've just sparked something in somebody here. Because you're dealing with issues of the past you've never told anybody. 
Uh, this is beautiful. Because I think God's meeting your need right now on how to get rid of that remorse, that flashback that tends to intimidate you. And the enemy uses that. He just didn't want you to find out that the blood of Jesus Christ can erase that from your conscience. The memory will still be there. And that's a good thing. It'll remind you not to make the same mistake again. <laughs> but the remorse is gone. The regret's gone because the blood of Jesus had, has erased it. Just receive it. You're, you're going to just rest in yourself today and the rest of your life, knowing that God's not going to bring it up in judgment against you. <clears throat> I led two young men to the Lord <clears throat> in Lebanon. I visited there 12 times in the period of time from the end of their 20-year civil war um, on from there because my oldest daughter became a school teacher in Beirut. And uh, as a result of that, I visited her and I got invitations to schools and university campuses and various Bible institutes because the nation is 70% Muslim, 30% Catholic. They call it Christian. But, um, and a smattering of Pentecostals. There was only one Assemblies of God church in the whole of Lebanon. And they used to feel very uncomfortable when I came to speak to them because I was leading Muslims to the Lord on the airplanes and, and visiting their families. And I'll tell you on Sunday morning, God raised up one Muslim man's mother-in-law who was dying. And as a result, I visited 14 families. Oh, I was having these garlic-filled meals with these people. It was coming out of my skin. And when I came back to my wife, she said, you stink. I said, well, I didn't notice till I came home because everyone smells the same in Lebanon. <laughs> but... Um, Two of those Muslim families knelt on their living room floor and said, we want the Jesus you have because we've heard about him, these miraculous things taking place. And uh, now the supernatural arrests the hearts and the thoughts of people who are estranged from him. And, and I'm, on Sunday morning, I'm going to focus on the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating through you freely amongst non-believers because the Holy Spirit has great love for all people us and those outside the, God's kingdom. And he'll do miracles through us to get their attention. I mean, I've just heard of so many miracles. Jesus appearing to people in dreams and visions from other cultures. And when you get there, we've been waiting, you for, waiting for you for 10 years to tell us how do we meet this wonderful uh, person named Issa, Jesus. Well, lots of stories like that. And they were confronting me by saying, are you a Jesus man, Issa? In some man. I said, yes, I am. Said, well, please don't backpedal. We want to hear because we see something in you we don't see in our colleagues. We want what you've got. Don't be frightened of people from other cultures who want your Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, let's focus on what we're handling this morning. We've availed ourselves of the solution to man's greatest need, our greatest need. The blood of Jesus Christ cleansed us and forgiven us. I know what I was going to tell you. These two young men came to me in two different schools, colleges, high schools, with the, the headmaster's permission. And these were the stories, almost identical stories, but these kids didn't know each other. They were both 18 years of age. At the age of 12, both of them had killed somebody because their father had gone at the peak of the Civil War out to a, um, a patrol with the Lebanese army and because uh, you had all sorts of uh, evil uh, factions uh, amongst both the Catholics and the, the Islamic people. 
They, they wanted preeminence. It was all political. And um, the father warned this little 12-year-old, there's my revolver in the drawer by the, um, the front door. If a strange man should come in one evening, kick the door down, he's going to hurt your mother and your daughters. You're the man in the home now for the next two weeks. Shoot him. Oh, the kid thought this is a Western movie. Um, this is a computer game, so to speak. Well, it happened. This man in uh, camouflage clothing kicked the door down, stormed in. No, nobody knew what faction he was from and made a grab for the mother. And the little 12-year-old said, don't you touch my mother. And what are you going to do, Sonny? Picked out his dad's revolver and shot a big hole in the guy's chest and killed him on the spot. Well, it wasn't a movie. The guy didn't get up and go home. A man didn't go home to his wife and children that night. And although the police commended him and said you, it was total self-defense and you're a hero, the kid carried that guilt. I killed a man. I killed a man. And it riddled him. It, it hammered his thought processes. He was battling at school. And this big boy, 18, he had a nice mustache and a beard growing, came to me and he said, Sir, with the headmaster's permission, you spoke about Jesus forgiving our sins. I said to him, son, did you pray that prayer with me at the end of my session where I invited people to pray quietly with me and give their hearts to Jesus? He said, so I did. Then I said, look, I don't view this as a sin. This was self-defense. It's like Old Testament warfare. You're defending your nation. You're defending your family. But I said, this has obviously got to you, and I want you to know that the sin is forgiven, it's gone, God will never bring it up in judgment against you. In fact, let the blood of Jesus now purge your conscience. He burst into tears. This giant of a boy sobbing on my shoulder was embarrassing. And the headmaster just gave me a little wave and quietly went out and left us. Well, that boy began to grow spiritually. He became a remarkable personal evangelist as a result. The other one, he had a bit more of a struggle. But that's, that's life. In parts of the world, we have no idea what's going on. Self-defense, preserved his family, but carried all the guilt. He got saved. <laughs> Man, I don't know what God is doing with that young life today, but I tell you, he was like a stone out of a catapult in service for Jesus. Well, what are we doing about sharing this with others? And what are we doing about training others to become witnesses like us? Remember that you're putting batons into people's hands and helping them to run their race properly. Um, they could have a remarkable personal, maybe even a great public ministry, as God chooses, especially after we've gone. You want to have people walking or running in your track shoes, um, running their race and bearing fruit on your behalf. Oh, I mean, it might sound a little selfish, but in the records of heaven, it's going on your report card after you've gone, that others are following your example. All right. Let me tell you something about running the race, 1 Corinthians 9. Brother Paul, actually at 67 years of age, he, no, he was 65 when he wrote these words. He died at 67. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. It doesn't say you'll win it, but run in such a way that you want to obtain it. Oh, you can't do better than that. And everyone who competes for this prize is disciplined in all things. that They do it to obtain a perishable crown but we for an imperishable crown. Now, Brother Paul was what the coaches called, in the athletic sense, a lag runner. Lag runners were athletes that coaches in those early days, back 600 years before Christ, 
when the infancy of the Olympics started in Greece. They were faster and stronger, more disciplined, more experienced, more committed than the average athlete. And they were normally placed in the most difficult part of a race, where the terrain was tortuous, where the, the opposition was murderous, because you were allowed to beat up your opposition, even kill them. The emperor praised that sort of thing. <laughs> Security checks today were put paid to that. Well, um, these were races that were run over about 240 kilometers. That would be about 160 miles. And it was run by teams against other teams. Because remember he said many run in a race, but one receives the prize. Many ran in that team, say 30, running uh, 40 or 50 kilometers each. And uh, only one in the team would run into the stadium and collect the prize. But he didn't win it for himself. He won it for the team. It was a team race. And that speaks of the body of Christ, helping each other in this race. Now, lad runners were normally the top athletes. They were humble men, and uh, they could be counted on. And if, say, for example, at one of the changeovers of the batons, uh, a, a lag runner was looking back, couldn't see his colleague coming up to, to meet him, and the other, te other teams had run past him. He would actually run back and find this guy, normally injured or beaten up, and he wouldn't dishonor him by snatching the baton away and leaving him there. He would pick him up and carry the man on his shoulder the remainder of the distance. I don't know how they called the paramedics in those days, but he'd get attention for the guy. Then this man would take the baton and run furiously to make up for the lag where the team had fallen behind. That's what the Greek word implicated, a lag runner. And if he came upon the next athlete who was inexperienced, he'd put the baton in his hands and run with him at least half his distance to encourage and protect him. So lag runners could be counted on to run at least twice their distance. <laughs> and that's what I'm looking at this morning. Lag runners who aren't going to actually train others, but you're going to help them, coach them, mentor them. And they're going to coach and mentor and help others following your example. This is the issue of teamwork. Well, there are thousands of believers I know who are praying like this. God, I want to know your will. Please use me in your service. And 20 years later, I come back that way again. They're still praying the same prayer and nothing's happened. Now, what are you waiting for? A great big scroll to drop from heaven with thunder and lightning saying, Dun, da, da, this is my will, go and do it. Now, God does do that sometimes. And there's no other method of message available. But... He's actually given us our marching orders already. How about these? Go into all your world and preach the gospel to every person. Go and make disciples of all nations. As you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't those statements sound very much like commands? <laughs> it's not optional. It's a command. And I want you to think about this logically. If we disobey... One of Jesus' commands, could we be inadvertently sinning? Could be why a lot of believers who keep their mouths shut too much and don't share Christ with others are living under a cloud. I'll give you a little example. And I don't say that this is the rule, but it happened to me. Uh, I'd been walking with the Lord for about a year. I was 19 and I was depressed. I'm never depressed. I was depressed. 
And I realized, sitting at the lunch break in this accountant's office where I worked, I was an article clerk to be a, a CPA later on, and um, I couldn't understand why I was miserable. And then it just suddenly dawned on me, I haven't witnessed to anyone for 10 days. Atrocious, atrocious. Because, I mean, the good news I had demanded to be shared. Well, I grabbed a few tracts out of my briefcase, stuffed them in my pockets, and walked out the street. I spoke to about 15 people, and I led three people to Jesus, who happened to be in the right spot at the right time, where I was, <laughs> and they were ready to receive Christ. And I came back to work an hour later, my spirit and joy soaring, and I saw the antidote for discouragement and um, depression, the antidote. Share Jesus with people. Release that joy of the Holy Spirit again. <laughs> uh, I'd rather have that than live under a cloud of misery all the time. Now, Jesus wants us to be his witnesses. Anyone here ever been a witness in a court case? I have twice. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. A witness is not asked to persuade the court or to manipulate the jury or to influence the judge. A witness is just asked to clearly and honestly share their experience. And the court, the jury, the judge makes up their minds. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces people. He convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And he's very good at his job. <laughs> Actually, he's the master evangelist. And we are working with him. Not him with us. We're working with him. This is a marvelous partnership where um, we might leave a situation thinking, gee, I lost that argument. That guy just beat me to pieces. You didn't lose the argument because the Holy Spirit stays with that person and he wrestles in them and he turns them right side up and inside out. <laughs> and a year or so later, the person comes knocking at your door. This has happened to me. Listen, I couldn't find you. I just heard where you lived. Please lead me to Jesus. I've had a miserable life since we last spoke. <laughs> so, all Jesus asks that we be his witnesses. Honestly, clearly share our experience of him. Can't do better than that. Now, some principles for being a successful or fruitful witness. Just beautiful basic stuff. Philippians 3.10. Brother Paul says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being performed to his death. Actually, the word, I believe, um, from the Aramaic into the Greek of knowing Jesus has such a personal context. Like, I believe if you track back into the Old Testament and found Adam knew Eve, Abraham knew Sarah, a godly man had an intimacy with his wife that had produced children. Brother Paul, I think, was saying there, I want to know Jesus so intimately in a pure sense that my relationship with him produces children for the kingdom, that people will want what I've got. You know, that's how I got saved. I was training with a swimmer at the time. I was the year period of a year that I was training with the South African Olympic swimming team. I was 16, 17, becoming 18. And there was a young Rhodesian guy, a white guy from what is now Zimbabwe. And he was lonely. He was 2,000 miles away from his parents and family and friends. And he, um, he had a Central African disease, Bilhazia. You heard about that, Rob? It comes from a parasite in slow move that breeds in slow-moving rivers, if you go and swim it. In a fast-moving river, they, they can't breed. But this parasite burrows through the skin into the blood and eats away the lining of your bladder and your stomach. It is miserable, and the treatment in those days was worse. And my friend Trevor had that. 
and I never heard him complain. He went out of his way, so unusual for a teenager, go out of his way to serve people and help them with compa real compassion. And I thought, he's weird. And I asked him one day, Trevor, what have you got that keeps you glued together? He said, David, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, don't you? I didn't know what he was talking about. Oh, I knew about Jesus. Forget of the church, historical personality, but what bearing could that have over 2,000 years with people alive today? I mean, well, the buzzer went in our training. We had to dive back in the water and swim another couple of hundred meters, but this bothered me for a month. And then I got an invitation to a garden party where Trevor's parents were coming to the area, and I heard his dad was a famous Central African rugby player, and I wanted to meet him. And with a cup of tea in my hand, his dad, Earl, shook my hand, and the first thing he said was, David, do you have a relationship with Jesus? <laughs> first question. I said, sir, I don't know what you're talking about, but is this what Trevor's got? He said, yes. I said, I want it. No argument. I wanted what Trevor had. <laughs> Another month later, I was saved. And I owe that family big time. <laughs> Get to know Jesus more intimately. My friend... 16 years of age, was getting to know Jesus intimately. In fact, when I received Christ, I came out of his dad's little office at the church, and Trevor was waiting for me, big smile on his face. The first thing he said was, welcome to God's forever family. Oh, I thought, that's a nice welcome. And I said, well, Trevor, where do we go from here? He said, well, Dave, uh, I'm walking with Jesus the best I can. Why not walk with me? The best follow-up program you can imagine. I mean, there are brilliant courses today, but nothing like somebody guiding you, mentoring you without owning you uh, that you've already warmed to. And we hung out together every now and again for about two years. We sang together until someone threw money at us to keep us quiet. And uh, we went to the beaches together occasionally and led surface to Christ and uh, all sorts of stuff. And... It put pillars in my life. And our paths went in different directions, but we still keep in touch today. He lives in South Africa. I live in Australia. Well, actually, mostly on airplanes. But uh, you know, I owe him. I owe his dad. I owe his mum. But anyway, we'll come more to that. And then, my friends, follow Jesus more closely. Just commit yourself to walk in his footsteps, to follow him, obey his word. Jesus said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Can't be helped. You follow Jesus, you'll be like him. You'll become a fisher of men, women and children. Then uplift Jesus at every opportunity. John 12, 32. If I'm uplifted, all men will be drawn unto me. Have you seen the little movie clip on the website? I didn't create it. Somebody else did, but they used my recording telling a story about Frank Jenner of George Street in Sydney. Look it up. It's called Jenna of George Street. You'll hear my voice. I'm just glad my name's not on it. But it's gone around the world telling the story about a brethren man, not even Pentecostal, a brethren man, who for nearly 30 years witnessed on George Street in Sydney. He couldn't preach for peanuts, couldn't hold anyone's attention in a public audience for more than five minutes. But what a soul winner. My wife calculated very conservatively that he had witnessed to 165,000 people in his life, more than most pastors. 
talk to in their lives. <laughs> and can you imagine when Frank Jenner died, because he eventually got Alzheimer's and passed away, uh, and in these lucid moments, he was still talking about Jesus, that he, um, when he entered heaven, everyone came up to him and said, Frank, welcome to heaven. Frank, welcome to heaven. How do you know my name? Well, your name is mentioned in heaven every day. Because Jesus said, if you confess me before me, and I confess you before Father in heaven. Gee, that's the, that's the place to be recognized, because that's where your reward is. It doesn't matter to be recognized on this earth, but um, to be recognized in heaven, you walk in, everyone knows your name, because you're spoken about just about every day, because you're uplifting Jesus. Don't you like that? And you're not, you, you won't even have an ego trip in heaven. There's no space for ego trips in heaven. <laughs> and then, here's a little prayer that I am daring you to pray. I pray this at the start of most days. I might not have my devotional time first thing in the morning because I've got to get up and rush to airports and stuff. I might have it later on in the day, but never a day hardly goes by without this prayer. Lord, you know where I'm going today. You know that I've got an agenda. And, as Lord, that's how I get things done. You know that. And as much as it annoys me, you're welcome to change this agenda. If you will lead me to people that you're already working in, that I'm going to encounter through the day, and help me to recognize that this is a God-given divine opportunity, because I don't want to miss it. And Lord, help me to cut through all the small talk and get to the point of that person's need where I can minister to them and lead them to Christ. Now, do you think that God might be vaguely interested in answering that prayer? <laughs> Your life won't be the same. It'll be full of adventure. It'll be nerve-wracking for others. Because people say to Margarita, my wife, how does Dave get into all these opportunities? She says, he asks for them. <laughs> I dare you. Look, the Lord won't take you out of your depth very much. Sometimes you'll have to swim. <laughs> because you'll realize, hey, this is big time. You might be talking to an immensely high-profile person that you don't even know. Or what position he's in. But he could be so high profile when he comes to know Christ, his light of Christ in him is going to shine far further than yours. And you've got an investment in all the people he reaches. Jesus. This is great stuff. All right. Being a persuasive witness. This is Brother Paul writing to the Corinthians. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now that's really powerful. That's, that's begging people to come. Now how about... Being persuasive in situations like this. I call it a tea bag ministry. I love herbal teas. One of my favorites. Cranberry, pomegranate, and uh, you dip this in hot water on an airplane. You've got a bit of a captive audience. The fragrance begins to waft around. And nine times out of ten, the guy sitting next to me will say, that smells delicious. Where'd you get that? I said, you can buy them in any supermarket. Have you got a Publix here in Memphis? No, that's mainly Eastern States. Okay, whatever really posh supermarket you've got, they will have Twinings or Lipton's tea. Now you probably have uh, U.S. herbal teas, but go for something like strawberry and mango, peach and passion fruit, or cranberry and pomegranate. It's delicious. And uh, mind you, I did, lo did love the coffee this morning. <laughs> uh, and... When the, person, when the guy sits and sitting next to me says, have you got a spare one? I said, yes. And I wait for him. He said, um, can I have it? I said, it's going to cost you. 
Well, how much? A dollar? Two dollars? I said, no, no. Five minutes of your time. Well, what are you going to talk about? The first time it happened, the guy said, what are you going to talk about? And I had to make it up quickly. I said, I'm going to talk to you about an amazingly loving, an exceptionally forgiving, and an eternally youthful God. And the guy said, God like that? All right, mate, you're on. He was an Australian, <laughs> flying from Brisbane to Melbourne, a two and a half, three-hour flight. So I kept the tea bag, set the timer on my watch, and I spoke to him about my relationship with Jesus for five minutes. And then the buzzer went in mid-sentence, and I stopped. I said, here, enjoy your tea. And he said, oh, come on, you got me interested now, keep going. Well, you know, non-believers have, don't have a great attention span. I mean, a lot of believers don't have a great attention span either. But um, what he did was, um, I could see he was winding down, and I was tired as well. About the eight-minute mark, so I said, look, I'm going to have a sleep. We'll talk about it later. Well, with that, I turned around just to lie in my seat, and I saw two guys across the aisle quickly turn away. I said, hey, fellas, were you listening to me? Yes, that was fantastic. I said, have a tea bag as well, because I carry them in my pocket. Well, I woke up about 45 minutes later, and this guy was leaning over me with a strange look on his face, and, and I said to him, hey, is um, there a problem? He said, I have never seen such peace. He says, it's like you were wrapped in a cocoon of peace, his terminology. I, he said to me, is this part of the deal? I said, yes. He said, I want it. And I led him to Jesus before we landed. <laughs> I love it. You know, you just got to have a go. I mean, if nothing happens, you've sowed the seeds anyway. And those seeds will never return void and fruitless. Now, I have here a little glove. That actually, I keep them in my little pocket Bible here. And uh, this little glove you can buy from Campus Crusade. How many people we got here today? 30? Uh, okay. I'm going to leave these on the, on the platform. You can come and help yourself to one. I think I've just got enough to go around. Um, get them from Campus Crusade. They cost about 85 cents each, but you buy them in packs of 12. I have bought tens of thousands of these probably hundreds of thousands over the years. Australia, Britain, United States, actually teaching the orphans in Eastern Europe how to witness this little thing. Now, I do recommend that you put powder on your hand because my hand is already sweating in here and sticking. And if you're going to use this often, it's going to be tatters in the first month. I can preach the gospel through this hand in three minutes Another three minutes, give a follow-up program and an altar call. Because each finger tells an aspect of the gospel. Well, this little glove, um, I keep in my um, pocket Bible here. And I took my Bible out of my travel bag on a plane to read it. And the paper clips shot off. And this thing fluttered down and landed on the floor in the aisle. And an elderly man across the aisle reached out. He said, that looks very attractive. What is this? <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I said, well, this is called the good news glove. And this is the good news. This finger tells you that God loves you. But this finger tells us we've sinned. And we've alienated ourselves from God. This red finger tells us about the blood of Christ shed when he died on the cross. But knowing these factors doesn't save us. We've got to do something about it. And this white finger has a gift on it. We've got to receive 
God's gift of eternal life in Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. And the guy said, is it that simple? I said, God made it simple and uncomplicated so that bozos like me could understand it. And he said, I would like that. So I led him to Jesus <laughs> across the aisle. His wife was getting very annoyed. And then he said, what's on the back? I said, well, you see the little heart that was sad there because Jesus didn't live, doesn't live in it. Now he's happy. Because Christ has come to live in that heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I said, but now <clears throat> we don't have to stay spiritual babies. We need to grow by praying each day, reading God's word, being obedient to God, and telling others about Jesus. Well, I add to that, find a good gospel-preaching church where you can worship and learn and grow together. <clears throat> and he said, can I have this? I said, sure. I said, look, I'm a little weary. I'm going to have a sleep now. That's my bowing out of the situation because I want the Holy Spirit to do the work, not me to prattle all the time. When I woke up half an hour later, he had the glove out and he was telling his wife. And he said, would you mind repeating that prayer again? And as I prayed it, he prayed it with me again and led his wife to the Lord. <laughs> well, these days, I deliberately drop the glove on the floor. I'm disappointed when nobody pays any attention. <laughs> oh, I have a lot of fun doing this. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> look, bring people to a decision. <clears throat> because, I mean, if the moment is right, and you'll never know until you ask. Like people say, how do you know the person who's ready? Well, ask them. Would you like to receive Jesus now? Is there anything stopping you from opening your heart and inviting him in? And if they get a little resistant, I use this, this terminology. Look, if you couldn't swim and you'd accidentally fallen into the bay or a wharf or something like that, and I was standing on the wharf with a lifeline, would you need to say, no, don't throw, that, throw me that lifeline. I want to think about whether you should rescue me or not. You'd be screaming at me, pull me out. And I say, you're in a worse predicament because life could be cut off like that and you're gone, cut off from the conscious presence of God for eternity. You need to receive this now. Well, that makes sense, all right. But then if the person is still resistant, leave them. Maybe they're not quite ready because a premature baby is very difficult to bring up. <laughs> There'll come a time when that person is ready. Now, <clears throat> how about this from D.L. Moody? probably one of the greatest evangelists that this planet has known. <clears throat> I heard Billy Graham say that at a convention in the 1980s. Because without the media, Moody apparently led more than 5 million people to Christ. 8th of October, 1871, <clears throat> the big fire of Chicago. That Sunday night, Moody was preaching to a huge congregation in Chicago. And... The theme of his message was, what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? The question Pontius Pilate asked the people. Well, he said, I'm going to give you until next Sunday to think about this. Mr. Sankey, his song leader, got up, Ira Sankey, got up to lead the final hymn. And even as they were closing the meeting, the fire bells were ringing, the fire carts were going out to put the fire that was started to rage around Chicago. Apparently, 90% in that audience perished in that fire. Moody's regret was this. And I've got this out of his memoirs. I have never since dared, he said, to give an audience a week to think of their salvation. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I've never seen that congregation since. I will never meet those people until I meet them in another world. 
But I want to tell you one lesson that I learned that night, which I've never forgotten. That is when I preach, to, wit, to press Christ upon people then and there and try to bring them into a decision on the spot. I would rather have my right hand cut off than give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. Wow. <laughs> and I heard Spurgeon. Well, I didn't hear. I read his memoirs, and it was very strong, especially from a man of his background. He said to an audience, if you're not concerned about winning the lost, then I doubt if you're saved. <laughs> but... Let me ask a question here. <clears throat> Who would consider yourself a bold, outgoing, outspoken person like Simon Peter? Well, I admire you, because I'm not quite there. I'm about in the middle between Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, shy, retiring, reticent at sharing the gospel. Now, if you fall into that second category, you have no excuse either, <laughs> because Andrew's mentioned three times in the Scriptures. In John 1, he brings his brother Peter to Jesus. Wow! Everyone Peter led to Christ went on Andrew's report card as well. Then John chapter 6, he brings a boy in his lunch to Jesus. John chapter 12, he and Philip bring some Greeks to Jesus. What a memorial! And I would like to have that memorial one day. Dave Smithers brought people to Jesus. That can be your memorial like Andrew. Now, <clears throat> I want to tell you, that you're a winner every time you witness. Even if the person speaks, you beats you down and wins the argument and you go away thinking that was a failure, you're working with the Holy Spirit and He does much more than you do. And of course, you're then sharing the eternal, life-giving, fruit-bearing Word of God that will never return void and fruitless. You're a winner every time. Now, I find there's two reasons, basically, why people don't witness. Is they don't know the facts or the tools of evangelism, and that's what we're remedying today. And I'm pretty sure you know the stuff already. Maybe I'm just refreshing it. But then, and now there's no excuse for us Pentecostals, because there are a lot of people that I teach who don't have the power of the Holy Spirit operating in their lives. It's readily available, and they've got to tap into it. And that anointing gives you the courage and boldness. Now, boldness is not loud, aggressive brashness where you shout the person down. That doesn't win people. Boldness means having an unembarrassed freedom. An unembarrassed freedom. You can be beat, this guy's trying to beat you down, argue into a, a paper bag, but you're just sitting there smiling, knowing that you're a child of God, and actually, without an, being in an ego trip, you are higher profile than they are, because you're a child of the king, and they're not. <laughs> I remind myself of that. Now, <clears throat> uh, let me just come to being God's star. I'm going to show you a movie clip. We're going to have a little break. God has his stars. I mean, the world loves their stars. They're these uh, movie celebrities, TV celebrities, uh, <clears throat> and, and the sporting stars, and whatever. But when those stars age, the fickle public go looking for a younger, more beautiful star. You can't help the wrinkles. You can't help the, help the love handles very much. And you tend to lose that stardom in the eyes of the world. But God's stars need never, ever lose their brightness. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 brings that out. And those who are wise, the people of God, shall shine as brightly as the sun's brilliance. And those who turn many from sin to righteousness 
will glitter like the stars forever. Don't you want to be God's star? Because he's the only one who really matters. You're actually doing this for an audience of one. Him. The Lord Jesus. Now, as I finish this, you may be in a situation or have been, and maybe you carry a bit of regret, where you got boxed in, you got hemmed in, cut off, people intimidated you, you had a great vision for the Lord, you had a method of witnessing and sharing Christ with people, but you got put down, even by well-meaning Christians. Oh, look, you're too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use. Somebody said that to me once, and I thought I'd better stop, and the Holy Spirit said, don't you dare. That person wants to hold you back like they've been held back. Oh, that jolted me. So if you're sort of boxed in by people's opinions and maybe circumstances, it's time you broke out of that and pushed ahead to win your race. I want you to watch this race. It took place with a Ukrainian girl who was in in Europe. These were world championships. And this girl, Natalia Preshepa, is a young kid. She was 18 when she entered this race. Quite an upcoming star. But watch what happened in the final stretch of the race. (laughs) They boxed her in deliberately. They knew she was dangerous. And those three front... This is is politically. It happens all the time. But she elbowed her way through. You box me in, I'm going to elbow my way through. And she did. She jostled through. It wasn't illegal. She didn't cause anyone to stumble. And she pushed her way through, and she won. She's a star. I like that sort of courage. And if you got boxed in, for whatever reason, circumstances or people, it's time you pushed through and broke out to win your race. All right. Let's have a 10-minute break. We come back for the next session. Thank you. Um, I have it on order through the pastor. But he's probably witnessing to somebody. Now tell me, who has done any fishing in lakes, rivers, the sea? All right. Oh, gosh, this is fantastic. You people are going to identify. Half strength, decaf, vanilla syrup with soy milk. That's my Starbucks order. No, I hope you didn't record that. <laughs> oh, Pastor Bob, thank you, sir. Thank you. I just gave someone my Starbucks, Starbucks order. Thank you, sir. By the way, you're going to be given at the close of this session... A little sheet, how to lead someone to Jesus. If you have a method that works, don't change it. Like if you have an electrical appliance that works, don't meddle with it. I used to take radios, the old uh, valve-type radios. They only worked when the valves heated up. Remember those? The, the advancement on the crystal sets? Did some of you older guys mess around with those crystal sets? I used to listen to rugby played in New Zealand on shortwave radio that I'd made. <laughs> Well, of course, I should take it apart and put it back together and have spare parts. What are these for? The thing's working. (laughs) So if you have a method of leading people to Christ that works, don't change it. But if it doesn't, or perhaps got out of date, perhaps this little method will help you. Um, On a Sunday morning in June 1962, 
I was three months old in the Lord. I was 18 years of age. The pastor's wife, who led the teenage Bible class, there were about 18 of us sitting in this little room. She had a chalkboard, and with white chalk, she wrote on it as she was talking, how to lead someone to Jesus Christ. I wrote it down on this envelope. This is it. This is a historical document. It's 55 years old. <laughs> I can barely read my writing. <laughs> and she said, now, that's what you're going to get on this piece of paper in a much clearer form. She said, I want you all to go out this week and endeavor to share Jesus with people, with one person, and then hopefully lead them to Jesus because she wrote the little simple little prayer of trusting Jesus as your, our Lord and Savior. And I thought, well, I know who I can speak to. I have one night this week free because I was working during the day, university at night and Saturday mornings. And Thursday night was free. And I, I, I know old Charlie Steele never goes out. He's an alcoholic. And he lives probably um, a mile from where I live. And I can walk that distance. And um, I don't even have to call to make an arrangement because his wife forbids him to go out at night because of his alcohol problem. And I also like the idea he had two very beautiful teenage girls. <clears throat> so walked up to his house on the Thursday evening. To my dismay, it was all closed in darkness. They'd gone out. Oh, my hopes were dashed. Now, where do I go? So I was angry with myself. I should have telephoned, um, contacted somebody else. And I walked down the hill, past the old high school gate where I used to go to school. And there was my friend Glenn Usher's house. I thought, I'm going to talk to Glenn. He'll listen to me. Look, I was a national sportsman when I was at school, so I had a bit of hero status, and all these little guys looked up to me. Now I look up to them because they're far bigger than me. But anyway, um, I knocked on Glenn's door, and his mother opened the door in tears. I said, Mrs. Usher, what's the matter? She said, I just found out my husband's cheating on me. Would you like to come in? I said, no. <laughs> I didn't want him implicated in that. And I thought, what a jerk her husband is. I'll knock his lights out when I see him. But um, we stood on the, on, the, on the porch. And I said, you know, Mrs. Usher, you need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. I know, but I know about Jesus, but how do I contact him? And I pulled out my little pocket Bible. And I said, I need you to close your eyes. I need you to concentrate. This is deeply important. Now, the only reason I asked her to close her eyes was I didn't want her to see it. I was reading it off the paper because I didn't know it. Step by step, I read each point, a little scribble of a verse of Scripture that I'd memorized. I got down to the point of the prayer, and she prayed the prayer with me, and she got saved. Then I took her through a couple of steps to get out of the starting blocks running the race. She said, thank you very much. And I said, I've got to go, go now. But get your Bible out and read John chapter 3 now. Because I always direct you converts to John, the Gospel of John. It's like the milk of the word for them. Don't ever call them babes in Christ. You lead a high-profile politician to the Lord and you call him a baby. <laughs> call him a beginner. You're starting to run the Christian race. So, I left. My, it was the first person I'd ever led to Jesus. My spirit was soaring. I did not know. This was the, one of the, the activators of the Christian's joy. So, um, next Sunday morning, she, the lady, pastor's wife, Lorraine Davies, asked, anyone share that good news? I put my hand up. 
with this envelope in my hand. Nobody else put their hand up. And I could see she was disappointed. She said, tell us what happened. Well, she was weeping when I told that story. I think she realized, and her husband realized, she'd started something big. <laughs> I owe that lady big time. She became our personal intercessor, especially when her husband, the pastor, died. In fact, when she passed away, I said, God, I need 100 people to take her place. So effective were her prayers. Anyway, um, I kept this with me. The f next six people I led to the Lord in the next couple of weeks, I had to keep referring to the paper. After that, it was part of me. It's part of me. And that will become part of you. You'll know it, and you will be teaching others. This is a very precious historical document. <laughs> All right. How to become a fisher of men. Now, uh, <clears throat> let me just get my paperwork sorted out here. There we go. Now, um, Matthew 4.19. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, we've already discussed that it's a command and it requires a personal commitment each day. Lord, I want to follow you today. Help me to become a fisher of men. Simple, uncomplicated. Now, you're gonna, I'm going to give you some parallels, five parallels to normal fishing that are brilliantly connected with fishing for men, women, and children. First of all, when a fisherman is going fishing, his purpose is absolutely glaringly clear. You can see he's walking down the road at a weird hour in the early hour of the morning in pouring rain with his rods over his shoulder, his bag of smelly bait, and his little case of tackle. You know what fishing tackle is. I don't have to explain that, eh? The sinkers, the hooks, the floats, the traces. You know the language. And um, by the way, you know my nephew, Philip Smithhurst? Um, his dad, you know, his grandfather. His dad, Philip, is my cousin. Uh, Peter, rather. And Peter's, and, uh, Peter's father, Philip's grandfather, Norman, my dad's brother, he taught me how to fish. And he was a great fisherman, my favorite uncle. So, um, we know what our purpose is. To fish for men, women, and children. It's top priority. And I don't have to repeat the words of D.L. Moody again. And it must stay clear for us, as well as others. You know, you can count on that person. They're a fisher of men, women, and children. You want to learn, focus on them. And Jesus must come first in our lives. And his claim on our lives must be top priority, and we must not be sidetracked by ambitions and promotions. I mean, don't be recklessly crude and, 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 and say, look, I don't care. Look, I've known Christians to use their boss's time at work, in the workplace, to witness and lead people to the Lord. Now, that's a bad testimony. Unless it's the boss who sits you down and says, tell me about your faith in Jesus. Then take as much time as he gives you. But I used to use tea breaks and lunch times. And guys would want to carry it over into the work um, sections. And I said, no, guys, we owe our boss this time. I can't use it for telling you about Jesus. We'll meet together at lunch, lunch break. And the boss was impressed by that. Um, I used to wear a little badge. I've still got it, actually. It's a little round pin badge, uh, red, sparkling red, and it's got gold letters on it, Jesus saves. You remember those old badges? I've still got it. I used to wear it on my business suit, my only business suit. 
that I used to wear to work. And uh, people would get upset about it. I mean, one old guy came up, that's nice wearing your name like that. Jesus, oh, Jesus saved. <laughs> well, one of my bosses came to me and said, Dave, look, everyone knows you're a believer. Can I suggest you don't wear that badge? And I said to him, Mike, is it, does it offend you? He said, not at all. Has it offended any of our clients that we, businesses we were the auditors for? He said, no, no complaints. You haven't lost any business as a result? No. I said, well, look, if you don't mind, I'll keep it on. I just, if anyone had been offended and they'd lost business because I would have taken it off. Because I'm the witness for Christ, not a badge. But I kept it on. And eventually Mike retired and I got his job. <laughs> so I wasn't too worried about promotion. God is the one who promotes. But don't be stupid. Don't be reckless and say, you know, I'll witness any time I like. You lose credibility when you do that. And secondly, his preparation is careful. I have seen fanatical fishermen the night before got their smelly bait out all over their wife's living room carpet. And I mean, his preparation is fanatical. Well, I reckon we need to be prepared each day in personal holiness, making sure our lives are right with God, that we're not out of sorts with God, because that tends to show to others. If God's convicting you about something, get it sorted, sorted out with him. Say, Lord, I need to think this through and talk it with you, but I'm wrong, and I ask you to forgive me, and I'll get back to you and we'll work this through. You clear the issue with God, and you're not distracted. You can still focus on winning the lost. And our lives win us the right to speak into people's lives, because that's like my friend Trevor. The way he lived his life, the, the compassion he showed, which was weird in a teenager, impacted me and showed me well. I could be like that. I don't have to be weird. Then thirdly, oh, let me just give you some pointers uh, to help you with your daily preparation. A time of prayer each morning, like Isaiah 54 and 5. I love those words. Um, the Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I may know how to speak a word in season to those who are weary. He awakens me morning by morning to prepare my heart. I'm paraphrasing it. He speaks to me, and I don't harden my ear. To his sayings. It's, it's from the scripture. And I'm thinking, and I, it might not be your, your devotional time. You may have your devotional time at another time during the day. But at least prepare yourself with a few minutes of silence at the start of the day, preparing yourself. Maybe uh, I pray, I, uh, part of my praying is uh, praying that crazy prayer that I mentioned earlier God lead me to people. But I have a little time of doing this. Sometimes it just takes me two minutes. I lift my hands up before the Lord, and I pick my, picture myself standing under a waterfall of the Holy Spirit. I used to do that in the, the waterways in South Africa. Out in the country, there'd be a little cliff and a, a, a big uh, lake beneath the cliff and a waterfall preparing, pouring over the top. And I'd be swimming around as a kid in this lake during the day and get thirsty and parched. I didn't like to drink the water in the river, but I'd go and stand under the waterfall. And with my Mouth open, just drinking this water in, becoming really waterlogged. That was almost coming out of my ears. And I get a picture of standing under the waterfall of the Holy Spirit like that. I just visualize this. Holy Spirit, fill me up. I got a bit depleted yesterday. This vessel is aging. It's getting a few cracks and leaking. <laughs> but fill me up, top me up, and then overflow. Look, I'm visualizing this. I don't feel much physically, but when you give the Holy Spirit an invitation like that, he takes it. 
don't go for the, just the top up for yourself. Go for the overflow, because that splashes onto others. And then, um, live as a true child of God. Don't be a weird fanatic. I mean, be genuine. Don't be a phony. Don't pretend to be somebody you're not, because that's an imposter. Be real. Be joyful. Be yourself. Let Jesus be himself in you and through you to others. You know, in Matthew 5, start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we're a lamp set on a table, and that lights the way for those close to us. He said you're also a city set on a hill. Because of total darkness at night, any travelers coming, no street lights. They were guided by the lights of a city, weaving their way through the darkened forests, etc., desert area to this light on a hill. And you, you are a city set on a hill, lighting people in from the darkness. And uh, Jesus said we're also salt. You know, salt had a multitude of uses. It was used for healing, for remedial purposes. It was used for preserving meat uh, and foodstuffs. It was used for fertilizer. Uh, but here's a commodity of salt we don't think of often. It makes people thirsty. And Jesus said, be careful you don't lose your saltiness, because then it's only good to be thrown out and used as, as a surface of a floor that kept all the bugs out of the house, where people trampled on it. If we were saltier, people would be thirstier for Jesus. Come on, ask the Lord to make you saltier. And then, don't condemn people for their way of life. I mean, you never win people that way. You, we can't fix their lives up because we don't know what broke them. Only God knows. So the point is, just love them into a relationship with Jesus. Don't pick on their faults because you drive people away. Actually, you'll find, I'm going to say in the next session, um, if you want someone to change from their bad habits, compliment them for the good things they do. Gosh, I'm getting a reward for the good things. Instead of being henpecked for all the bad things I'm doing, I'd rather change and get more rewards. Just psychological. And, um, you know, Jesus was called by the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Matthew 11, the friend of despised tax gatherers and sinners. He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And, you know, I think it's a rather a shame that the friends most Christians have are all believers. And there are non-believing families out there who would love to have a good Christian friendship, someone they could trust with their problems, and they won't be splattered around the country, and, and someone they could look up to. You probably have neighbors who are watching you, gee, I'd love to be your friend. But yeah, you don't have to be like them. You don't have to get contaminated by some of their warts and corns, but you know, just offer your friendship to them. You'll be amazed how many you lead to Jesus like that. When I moved, I was used to great friendships amongst non-believers in South Africa, because everyone was friendly, even amongst the tribal people, because I grew up with the black people, the Zulus. And I can walk into any African township where Zulu is the major tribe. You know there are 12 major black nations just in South Africa who don't like each other, who don't uh, get on with each other. It's a historical thing going back centuries. They're always at war with each other. And um, uh, the only thing that really unites those tribals, people are in Christ. And there's a lesser degree in the workplace where they've got to work together and forget about tribal differences. Now, the Zulus are the most powerful tribal group, and their language tends to be spoken by all the other tribal groups. Um, and I can come into, like, a, a gas station in one of the tribal areas and greet the guys. Now, I'm not speaking in tongues. That's a real language. I just said, good day, sir. God bless you. How are you? 
And thanks be to God that we've met. A very courteous, traditional greeting. A white man speaking my language. Well, there's an instant bond. So uh, I made so many friends. In fact, as a kid growing up, <laughs> I learned all the swear words first. <laughs> I mean, boxing with these guys and kicking their shins and getting kicked back. You tend to let the carnal nature out a lot. And I had to cancel those words out of my vocabulary when I got saved. But always, once a month, security police were knocking on my dad's door. Mr. Smithers, got to stop your boy fraternizing with the Zulu kids. My dad said, they're his friends. You butt out. Now, my dad was a national boxing champion. He was a light heavyweight boxing champion of South Africa. All the authorities knew him. Well, Mr. Smithers, if you say so, you can discipline your boy, but he's going to cause trouble. I never caused trouble. But these, these guys were my friends, and uh, it was a preparation for my ministry in the future. But the friendships were, were the basis of my evangelism, friendship evangelism. I just love that. Then, have a heart of love. Don't be argumentative, dogmatic, or forceful. That doesn't win people. You can win the argument, but you won't win the person. Uh, just be a considerate friend. And in fact, I'm going to say to you in the next session, our love for people is spelled T-I-M-E. I mean, when this is being translated into Russian, they have a terrible job having the letters T-I-M-E in their vocabulary. is totally different. You know, time spent with them, just being a friend, talking about natural things, not necessarily crude things, and just letting the love of Jesus flow out of you and touch them. And, uh, I mean, Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has already been shed abroad in our hearts, so let it out. Don't have to beg for it to be there. It's there. Just say, Lord, help me to let this out. And then... Third point, his place is chosen. A good fisherman goes where the fish are. I used to love to fish amongst the black people. You know, it was so ridiculous under the apartheid era. There were different beaches designated for different uh, ethnic groups. There were the white person's beach. There was the Indian person's beach. There were the, the, the black people's. There were the colored person. They were a half-breed race of people way back in the early colonial days of whites fraternizing with black people produce the colored people. And they were the most degenerated by the, the apartheid situation because they were non-entities. Gee, it was easy to bring them to Jesus. And they were great boxers. I used to love box, boxing with them as teenagers because they put up a good fight. But um, uh, I used to purposely get off the bus at the white beach with my little fishing tackle and my my little canvas bag for carrying all my fish in, and I'd walk right through to the black beach. And all the old black fishermen would greet me. Kosasan, Kosan, Kosan, Kosasan is a woman. Kosan, um, little boy. And uh, call, I'd say, gentlemen, what fish are swimming today? Oh, it's this type of fish. What bait are you using? Because I never brought bait. I'd, get, I'd, I'd buy theirs for a couple of pennies. And, uh, well, we're using brown bread today soaked in curry powder. Brown bread tied to your hook with cotton soaked in curry powder. And I used to pull in the fish. And when I, my bag was full, since it's catching anymore, I'd say goodbye to them. Shlalagashli, hambagashli. And we'd, I'd, I'd walk. I'd purposely walk up through the white guys who catch, catching nothing. And I'd say, suck it up. Look what I caught. <laughs> you know. You go where the fish are if you want to catch fish. And the Holy Spirit will guide us each day to where people are in need. It's like I like to go to my normal Starbucks in Brisbane if I'm downtown and the Holy Spirit will say, not there today. 
I want you to go to Costa Coffee, but Costa is inferior. It doesn't matter. You have a connection there I want you to get. And I go and sit there. The man comes and sits next to me, and the Lord said, he's here. Talk to him. <laughs> you go where the fish are. And I love what Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. He says, be ready in season and out of season. In season, when you have an opportunity. Out of season, make your own opportunity. <laughs> like with a tea bag or something like that. Now, just to show you where I have been coaching a lot of very disprivileged people who have every reason to say, God has not been good to me. I'm not going to serve him. Why should I talk about that Jesus? The orphan kids. They have raw deals in life throughout Eastern Europe. They're downtrodden. The, the governments, the politicians get an allowance for the, the, the benefits to these kids and the widows and the elderly pensioners, and they pocket the money. The country doesn't see that benefit. Some of them are part of the European Union, and that should be followed up, but it's not. So the orphanage we support over the years, what I've done is taught them how to witness. After leading them to Jesus, I have local teams now. I have a local team of 50 in Latvia that go across into Belarus. They're all young people, some of them working, some of them full-time on my teams, under my managers, and I couldn't operate without them because they know the culture, they, they know the weather, once a month to every orphanage, 30, all 30 orphanages in Latvia, uh, in the, the winter months, twice a month in the summer, but on a roster basis. Teams of 10, 15 go out. They put on a little concert with drama and music and uh, testimonies. They're building the kids up. They also check on their needs, and I get a list of needs. Spiritual requirements, medicines, vitamins, blankets, clothing, and stuff, and we try and raise the funds to meet those needs. But essential teaching these kids how to share Jesus with others. And uh, these are meetings amongst the homeless people in the parks. Now, there I am with a good news glove teaching these kids, giving them all the gloves. Now, what happens is they will go. Now, I didn't, I didn't tell them to do this. One of the staff members said, bring your gloves tomorrow to all the kids. They take them down to the local market on a roster basis, so like once a month, a group of 20 of them will come to the market with supervision so they can learn the value of money and what that buys, and, and this is how you're living. And one day you're going to be grown up and you're going to be shopping in the marketplaces. Well, these kids brought their gloves along, and when they'd finished all the shopping that they needed after about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, they got, all got together with the gospel gloves and began to sing, attracted all the old folk, the babushkas and the grandfathers over, and they watched them put on a little concert with some hick drama and little Russian songs. And, and then one of them got up with a glove and said, there's a little story. And they ran through the pointers of the glove and gave an altar call. Apparently, 60 elderly people, most of them women, prayed and received Jesus. And it was the staff member that encouraged the kids. Invite them to walk half a mile with us to the orphanage for a cup of coffee and some cookies. So all these 60 people trailed down after the kids, skipping and dancing down the road. And they sat down to tea and coffee. And the director, Zenta, she's a sweetie. She's she retired. An elderly lady gave them a little gospel message and encouraged them. They said, can we come back again? She said, come once a week. They've got a house church of 50 people meeting regularly now. And the word got around to the... I didn't teach them that. They're just that passion to lead people to Jesus ended up with planting a church. And what better place than the orphanage? Where they've got all the facilities there in a little hall, 50 people meeting regularly. 
and sometimes they move to other parts of the country, to other countries to get work, and others come in. And the word got around to the other orphanages, let's do that too. It was a means of the public seeing their needs and putting little bits of money in to the lives of those kids. Now, and the kids did it. I didn't teach them. I just taught them how to lead people to Jesus. Well, of course, these are orphans from the Chernobyl zone. For a period of years, we brought those nine orphanages up on a roster basis. Every summer, we had about 18 weeks of camps back to back to back at a campsite we set up in, in the middle of the, the nation of Latvia. And these Chernobyl kids would come up. They'd get saved. I'd give them the gloves. They'd go back and ferociously witness little choreographed teams going out to other orphanages, sharing the gospel because they knew their time was limited. I mean, if we could all live and share Christ like that, we're not going to be on this planet forever. Let's get as many saved as possible. These kids had maybe five, six years to live. And they made sure others got into the kingdom of God as well. Now, this little girl, Madara, she was handicapped. She had... <clears throat> Very bad um, back, uh, back injury at birth, where the nervous system in the lower back was just shattered. And the, to her extremities, nothing worked. And so she was in a wheelchair. But she got saved as a much smaller little kid. The very first orphanage I started supporting in 1993 on the coast of, of northern coast of Latvia. And um, she... I probably as a 12-year-old started talking about Jesus to the new kids coming into the orphanage because parents were absconding, dumping the kids on the orphanage steps in midwinter and disappearing, or a car accident or a bar fight uh, or a family murder would make these kids orphans and they were put in the nearest orphanage. Well, she would be talking to the kids about Jesus and she became a tremendous little soul winner until one day... One of the kids came to her desperately sick and she held the kid's hand and prayed for them and they got healed. And God began to use her remarkably with healing. Now that's one of the mysteries. She's in a wheelchair but healing power is flowing through her and others are getting healed. And I took this to God regularly. I was angry. I said, God, what about her? What about her? I mean, she's sowing seeds of salvation and healing to others. Come on, let a harvest come back to her. Well, you know what happened? I met an old surgeon visiting Latvia from St. Petersburg, which is a four-hour train ride across the border into Russia. And he said, you know, I do surgeries like this, uh, and especially if they're little kids. It's a pity she couldn't have had the surgery at, at just after birth, where I link up the nervous system to the muscles down through the, the lower body. And I said to him, can you do this for her? He said, well, I'd have to give her a check out first. But he said, possibly yes. He said, by the way she moves in the wheelchair, I think there's life there. And I said, well, look, what's the prognosis? He said, well, five surgeries over two years. I said, give me a price. He said, well, look, I'm retired now, and I really don't need the money. Let's make it $10,000. I said, are you sure? Do you use a backyard garage to do the surgery? He said, no, I use a big clinic. He said, I'm on the directorship of a neuro clinic. <laughs> okay. Um, I said, and you're not going to push the price up once we get started with this, because I know people who, he said, you can't threaten me, young man. The worst in this world have threatened me, and I've beaten them back. <laughs> she had two surgeries, and Madara is walking, and she hasn't lost her vision, because I thought, now, once someone like this gets a healing, or the thought of becoming normal, they forget about their calling. 
And arrogance sets in. Now, I'm somebody important, but she hasn't. She's still a soul winner. She still prays for people. Now, because of her condition, not quite out of the woods yet, she has her own room, which we have funded, but instead of sharing it with three others, because she's a big girl and she needs privacy. And um, she's doing, as well as a Bible study diploma course, she's doing a, an IT programming course. Because that's probably the best thing that she's, she's geared for in later life. But we've got a concession for her to stay. She's beyond 18 now. And 18 is the time they've got to leave the orphanage, find their own way. Now, what we normally do is put them through work-related courses so they can prepare for the workforce. But now she's going to be there longer than normal. And it's working out well for her. I'm thinking, here's a ministry that could be like Catherine Coleman. That's worth investing in. Well, in Ukraine... We've ministered to a lot of homeless kids living in the sewers and the drains under the city. They left home. Oh, this goes back for me 15 years, about the time I met you guys. And um, uh, these kids left home as little kids, four, five, six, seven, eight years of age, in little groups to live in the sewers because their mothers, they didn't know who their fathers were, their mothers were running brothels, allowing the perverts to rape the kids for extra money for the mother's drug habits. And so the kids got together and lived in these sewers. We still have that ministry today. Now, I don't go in there regularly anymore because the local team does, made up of people who came out of those drains, got saved and got cleaned up, and are leaders in the local church today. <laughs> what did Hannibal Smith say every time the A-team finished an adventure? I love it when a plan comes together. That's my motto. Well, here are those kids now. In a church that we planted, the local Russian Pentecostal church couldn't handle them, asked them to leave. So I rented a hall, and they meet together now. It cost me $100 a month. <laughs> and this is the team that goes out in all weather back into the sewers. You'll see some of those guys from the old photographs really cleaned up well there. The, the, they are such expert fishermen. And all I did was te teach them once, and my team keeps, encour keeps encouraging them. All right, the fourth point is... His person is concealed. The fisherman's person is concealed. Anyone ever done any trout fishing with a fly line? Uh, this, you Trout are very suspicious. Other fish are too. Because if you're standing with the sun behind you and your shadow is uh, moving over the part of the water where those fish are hiding, they will not come out. You'll distract them. You'll be a stumbling block to them. You make sure the sun's in front of you, your shadow's behind you. And you don't go stomping around in the water. Because they'll sense the movement and swim away. You see what I'm saying? Don't be a stumbling block. Don't think, do things deliberately that are going to offend people. Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. So you may become blameless, become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And then the fisherman's patience is constant. If you don't catch fish immediately, you wait a little while so that it allays the fish's suspicion. There's no more danger. I'll go after that bait, and you've got them. And, of course, we are to witness patiently and pray long, especially for family members. Who has family members here that you're concerned about, not in God's kingdom yet, and you're having to be ultra-patient? Wonderful. Next session is going to help you. Um, I remember how patient God was with me. I've learned to be patient with others as well. Sometimes it takes 
a while to get through that hardness. Now, pray for those you're concerned about. Because you're always praying in accordance with God's will. Even though you're getting opposition, you see such an imperviousness and a hardness. How is God ever going to get through? He is getting through. 2 Peter 3, God is not willing that any should perish. 1 Timothy 2, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You're praying in the center of God's will when you're praying for someone's salvation. So be patient. Now, simply how to pray for people. Pray that the Lord will convict them of their need of Christ. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts because he's there all the time, working with them, convicting them. Pray that they'll see Christ in you. Pray for opportunities to witness to them. And when they come, don't miss it. And pray for wisdom to use those opportunities well. And pray for the right attitude and the right words. Now, I pray for that all in a couple of sentences. In saying those words, you get your spirit and your mind in line with what you're praying. And God, God will have you ready in the race when the opportunity comes. Now, let me just show you something here that will encourage you. <clears throat> Someone you might have been working with for ages, and you think, God, I don't think anything is happening. Maybe you're not concerned about them. This will help that attitude. Do you remember the little kids game, connecting the dots? I still don't know what that animal is. It looks like a pig. And life, life can be like that. When you think, oh, I've got this worked out. I'm connecting up the dots ahead of me and God's will for my life. And then you're getting to honor this. Oh, this is turning out very different from what I thought. When you come to the end, oh, it's turned out so differently. You can't preempt. Just one step at a time. Look, it's not as simplistic as this. We may take a detour every now and again by accident or deliberately. But God's gracious, he brings us back to the plan. Let me connect up some dots through history for you back in the 1800s. Anyone heard of this man, Edward Kimball? Right. Edward Kimball was a teacher, a school teacher, somewhat, in Boston in the mid-1800s. He was desperately concerned about a young man downtown Boston who sold shoes. And every opportunity, he'd pop into the shoe shop and talk with this young man. Always busy shoe shop. And one particular day, he felt such a burden for this young fellow he said, I've got to go and really seriously talk to him about his soul today. Well, the shop was extra busy when he came in. He sort of fumbled around a little bit with the distractions, and, but impressed on this young man, I'm so concerned about your soul. You need to get right with God. You need to receive Jesus. And then he left. Well, during that young man's lunch break, he went back into the storeroom, sat down, and he sort of half prayed, and he said, well, God... That man's concerned about my soul. I guess I should be. And I, I reckon I should give my life to Jesus. I don't really know how to do it, but I'd like to do it now, and I'd like to invite you into my life and put my life in your hands. And that day, D.L. Moody got saved. Very few have heard of Edward Kimball. But we've all heard of this man. Now, Moody touched the lives of millions. But I'm just singling out one, because I'm following a train of thought here. He brought a young man to the Lord by the name of F.B. Mayer, Frederick B. Mayer, who became a great theologian, and some of his books on systematic theology are still used in seminaries today. And F.B. Mayer turned out to be a great speaker and evangelist. He, I think he might have been Presbyterian, not sure. But uh, he was concerned about the next generation, and he focused a lot of his ministry on the colleges and university campuses. 
And in the many he brought to Christ in that area was J. Wilbur Chapman. Who, this man became a Presbyterian minister and he became a director of the YMCA movement and turned it back to its original vision to be an evangelistic association. Now he is a phenomenal networker. And people contacted him from all over the USA and Canada asking him to arrange speakers for their conventions. And a group of churches in the late 1920s in Charlotte, North Carolina, asked him for the first time they got united, please bring us a rousing speaker to get people saved. And he arranged for Billy Sunday to come, the great baseball player turned preacher. Actually, I preached in a few churches where he had filled the church. One was an Assembly of God church in the boxing capital of Brockton, Massachusetts, where Rocky Marciano came from. You know that name? Where Marvin Hagler came from with half an ear. Yeah, no, I won't go down that road. <laughs> and um, actually, I filled the church that day. No, they, they came because of the church, not me. <laughs> and a lot of people came to the Lord. But it was a great success. And eight years later, about 1934, they contacted Wilbur Chapman again and said, send us a, find Billy Sunday. We want him again. Well, he couldn't because Billy Sunday was busy elsewhere. So they got Mordecai Ham, the great Baptist revivalist, fiery preacher and Bible teacher. And it was a huge success. Now, there was a dairy farmer in that area, and I cannot find his name, an important man for this reason. He brought people to those meetings every night in his dairy truck and twice on a Sunday. And a lot of people got saved through that dairy farmer. He had two 16-year-old boys working on his dairy farm, who were not interested in coming to the meetings. Not interested. They had their own lives to live. And he, uh, he, he coerced them by saying to one of them, you can drive the truck in to the meeting. I mean, I don't know about driver's license laws in those days, 16 years of age. And the other one, you can drive the truck back. And that night, after a 20-minute message and a 22-minute altar call, now that's really begging, those two young guys walked to the front of that hall and gave their lives to Christ. And one of them was Billy Graham. <laughs> I mean, look at the connecting of the dots. I mean, there were a lot of links in the chain in between. And, uh, but I, I, just, I just love this. Uh, I want to find the name of that uh, truck, that, the dairy farmer. The man who faithfully brought people to the meetings. And well, I tell you what, his name is famous in heaven. <laughs> However, let's skip ahead. Going back about 10 years ago, <clears throat> ministers fraternal in southern Brisbane that I meet. I still hang out with some of them. Sitting next to me there, behind me in the red sweater, is a South African Church of England pastor. He also speaks Zulu and Afrikaans. Now, anyone here from South Africa? No one speak Afrikaans? Oh, okay. I'll try it on the congregation tomorrow morning. <clears throat> um, and then the next one, uh, starting coming across from the left, is uh, uh, Assembly of God pastor. Next to him is a school chaplain. Then the man with the mustache, the elder man, he's a Lutheran pastor. Another school chaplain. Then two, husband and wife, Anglican Church of England priests. And then the big man sitting across from me, his name is Roger Lang. He's a Spirit-Filled Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, CMA pastor. 
very popular around Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, they can be very spiritual. It just depends on the pastor. And he said to me, after that meeting, as the guys were leaving, have you heard of Sammy Dacher? I said, no, I haven't. He said, you've been to Lebanon to preach very often. Haven't you met Sammy? He pastors a CMA church outside of Beirut. That's probably in the country where I haven't gone. He said, do you know Sammy's story? I said, no. He said, well, Sammy, a very faithful pastor, a little church. And um, every Sunday morning, Saturday morning was his sermon preparation time. So he would get his head down in his office, prepare a Sunday uh, sermon, and then afternoon was family time. But when he got up, the Lord said, no sermon preparation this morning. Oh, oh, this can't be God. And the Lord said, you've got to go downtown to Hamra. Now, Hamra in central Beirut, even after the Civil War, I was even frightened to go there. Because Hamra was like a Nazareth. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? I mean, if you wanted to find um, an assassin or someone to start a war, you could, you could rent one there. Uh, if you wanted somebody to organize an assassination, just by taking a limpet grenade and putting it on a metal shelf in a supermarket where the person you want killed would go shopping, he would be killed and 25 others would be killed in the shop as well. That was Hamra. Or you could find a renter crowd to go and start a private war of mercenaries somewhere. That was Hamra. And my daughter would want to take me downtown Hamra. And I was concerned about that. However, Sammy was thinking, I'm going to miss my sermon time. I've got to go into Hamra. It's a long way. I mean, the traffic in Lebanon is ghastly. But he went. And he sat down at that coffee shop, which is now a Costa coffee shop. That's a a European brand, <clears throat> and uh, Brazilian coffee. And he sat at that, and he said, well, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Well, the Lord said, a young man is going to come in soon, and you've got to give him this message, and then you can go. You're to say this to him. You've got to turn back to God now, otherwise time's up. You're going to lose your destiny and lose everything, because I'll have to put somebody else in your place. You've wasted your life. And if you're going to carry on this way, then um, I'm finished with you. Wow, he said, I can do that. It's rather severe, but I'll do it. Okay. Well, the young man turned up. He smelt him first. This guy brushed past him, barefoot, dirty, tattered jeans, filthy T-shirt, long hair, and he really smelt bad. Sat down at another table, ordered a black coffee, and Sammy got up. Went and sat next to him, and the young man really showed his distaste. He said, I don't want to talk to you. He said, I want to talk to you, because I have a message from God for you. I don't want to hear it. Well, you hear me out, and then I'm leaving. He said, okay, go ahead. He said, God says to you, you've got to turn your life around and come back today. Otherwise, time is up. You're going to miss your destiny. God's putting somebody else in your place. He said, I've heard it all before. You sound like my father. And Sammy said, who's your father? He said, Billy Graham. And Sammy said, who's Billy Graham? I mean, how unaffected by the world can you be that you've never heard of Billy Graham that's rude. that's country he wasn't faced Sammy wasn't overawed and after an hour and a half of begging and pleading he brought Franklin Graham back to Jesus gee I love it love it they are good friends today obviously Franklin's devoted a whole chapter in his book rebel with a cause to Sammy and his faithfulness you could be a person like that, bringing someone to Jesus that turns out to be 
a nation shaker, a world reformer. Now, you know, Franklin's son, Will, I've met him, has the anointing of the old man. Franklin has a different ministry, very effective. But Will Graham, he has the anointing of the old man. He's going places. And that man, Sammy, was the fulcrum. I didn't know about him, and I know a lot of people. I know a lot of names. But God knew him, and God knew where to, ha where to find him and send him to a dangerous place to be a rescuer that day. I'm looking at people who are going to be rescuers. All right, let's have another short break. We'll come back for the next session. Okay. Well, something a little closer to home in <clears throat> reaching your friends. Down closer circle, it's a little bit different from um, uh, meeting someone casually on a flight or a train, and all you've got is that space of time you might never see them again. <clears throat> and incidentally, let me say, you might be part of a chain of people that God has to speak to that stranger. Uh, you might be the 18th link in the chain. And link number 25 is going to lead that person to the Lord. But you are indispensable in that link, series of links. Don't miss out your opportunity of sowing the seeds in that situation. All right, reaching your friends. And I'm basing this on Proverbs 18.24. A man or a woman who has friends must show themselves to be friendly. It's the law of sowing and reaping. If you want friends, you sow seeds of friendship. I often say that to lonely people who don't relate to people well. Sow the seeds of friendship to one person and you reap a harvest back. Oh, and there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, I used to use that verse in my early years of rejection by my family, being beaten up by my dad because I wanted to serve Jesus. <clears throat> Lord, everyone seems to be against me except you. Oh, I felt so sorry for myself. And, uh, but you're the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, that's true. But that's not what that verse means. That verse has the context of friendship. We are to be the friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister to someone in need. And that's one of the greatest strategies in winning your friends and your family, but we'll deal with family in a moment. And of course, your life is the most powerful weapon influencing your friends to Christ. <clears throat> Let me give you three very simple factors, common sense factors, that I guarantee you are seeing in your life already, but let me put them in together. You can see the weapon you've got, the freshness factor. First of all, keep your relationship with Jesus fresh, sparkling, and romantic on a daily basis so that people look at you, they're going to see a difference, they're what have you got, like I saw with my friend Trevor. And our message that we're living out and hopefully have the opportunity to say is, I have a friend who's changing me. He's carrying me through the hard times. He's helping me through loneliness, helping me plan for the future. I have a relationship with him. Um, let me tell you a little story. Some of you might remember this, Rob, from, what, 2004, when we, I came up here last time, um, where <clears throat> two young ladies on a university campus. One's name is Jane, plain Jane, stick-like figure, unromantic, no chemistry, Strain Jane. And then you have 
glamorous, curvaceous Gloria. Now look, if present company has any of these names, you're not in the focus. Uh, <laughs> I've got to guard myself there. <clears throat> Where um, Gloria, she's not very bright, but she's the most popular girl on the campus. Everyone on every sporting team, every guy wants to date her. So her assignments are always late, and she barely passes her grades. Now, a telephone conversation. Jane calls Gloria. Gloria, I hope you've got some time. I want to tell you something. And Gloria's thinking, boring, Jane. Well, I've met this guy, and I think I'm in love with him. And there are a number of reasons for that. Number one, there's a chemical reaction taking place. Number two, we have certain likes and dislikes that are similar. And thirdly, we have some common denominators where we're attracted to the same subject. The phone's gone down. No interest. Now, we'll start the conversation again. Where, uh, sorry, I got excited and moved the program. <clears throat> Jane calls Gloria. Gloria, <clears throat> got a couple of minutes. I want to tell you about this gorgeous hunk of a guy that I'm in love with. Oh, Gloria's fascinated. Jane, of all people. Well, uh, he's, he's big. He's immensely strong. He's, he's uh, a courageous man, but immensely compassionate. I see such amazing characteristics that I want to marry this guy and snuggle down into a relationship with him where I'm going to be content and, and protected for the rest of my days. And Gloria's forgotten about her assignment. She wants to know about this guy. Why? When the first conversation turned her off, why was she attracted? Well, the first conversation, Jane was sharing her beliefs as to why she was in love. Second conversation, she was talking about the object of her love and why she was in love with this guy, the relationship. You see the difference? That got Jane's, uh, Gloria's attention. <laughs> People actually don't need our beliefs. Or they will later because they'll form the tracks that they'll run on and the, the pillars that will support them. What they need now is our friend, Jesus. You tell them about your friend who's helping you through the down times, helping you plan for the future, lifting you out of discouragement, meeting your needs. Wow, you get people's attention. <laughs> like me saying to that man on the airplane, I'm going to talk to you about an amazingly loving, exceptionally forgiving, and an eternally youthful God. You say that to an old man. He wants to know it. <laughs> now, the second factor is the focus factor. Man, you might want the whole of Tennessee and Mississippi saved. How are you going to do that? One person at a time. Now, you may eventually, you may have done this already, develop the capacity to have 10 or 15 people on a string of witnessing at different stages of approach and leading them one by one to the Lord. But the best place to start is one person at a time. Now, what I suggest is... <clears throat> In your pocket Bible that you may take with you, or your reading Bible, um, <clears throat> every place you read, have a little card with somebody's name in it, or a photograph. You want to see my study Bible. It's got uh, four places where I'm reading, numerous photographs, new, numerous cards that I've been praying for people, and when they get saved, they move to another section, because I'm praying for their, their growth and God's calling on their lives. And I even have some family members' photographs in there. So when I open the Bible, the first thing that arrests me is that person, name or face. And I stop and I say, God, just want to focus a moment on this person. I know you're focused on them. I want them saved, but you want them saved more. 
So I'm praying that you work in them, convict them of their need of Jesus, move angelic forces around them, keep them out of trouble, keep them moving in the right direction, and send your faithful people around at times to sow seeds into their lives. Let's get them saved, Lord. God's interested in getting them saved. It gives you that focal point. Focus on that person. Well, of course, um, uh, what I suggest you do, maybe you can have two Bibles when you're reading another Bible, uh, where you, once they get saved, move their photograph or their card into another Bible, and you're praying for their growth. Reading, I'll leave that strategy to you. I have a crazy mind when it comes to things like that. A visual aid helps me to get focused. Now, the... Next factor, oh, now, what's going to happen when you happen to be in that person's company? Before you get there, if you know you're going to meet that person, just check out your spiritual status. Am I really in the right shape, spiritually? Because that person's going to look me up and down. They probably know me reasonably well. They'll get the right, Lord, I, I want them to get the right vibes. I know I'm not perfect, because if I'm totally perfect, well, they can never be like me, and you tend to cut yourself off if you're acting too perfect. <laughs> I did that inadvertently first few years in ministry. I was just rushing around everywhere, high schools, university campuses, Youth for Christ camps and rallies, and then hosting a, a Youth for Christ team visiting. And one young girl who'd known me, I'd brought her to the Lord <clears throat> a few years before. She was in our home with a, her missionary team, and she saw us sit down to a meal of spaghetti bolognese. And her thought was, she told me afterwards, he actually eats. She said, you projected yourself as almost a superhuman. And I said, gosh, I was so wrong. I'm so sorry. So sorry I gave you that image. I became human after that, but still tried to uplift Jesus. I think I was getting in Jesus' way by projecting myself as Wonder Man or something like that. So be yourself. Let Christ be himself in you. And I mean, just check out your life. Is there anything in my life that would, if that guy heard about it, and I'm talking to him about Jesus, heard about this fault in my life, would it distract him? That's a very good reason to start adjusting things in your life. Live Jesus before them as best you can. <clears throat> then the third factor is the freshness factor, uh, the friendship factor. Now, I'm going to appeal to your logic. Do you agree with me that Jesus is the best friend you've ever had? the most loyal, the most loving, the most kind, the most sensitive, the most listening friend you've ever had. Definitely. Now, do you agree that Christ lives in you? All right. <clears throat> do you also agree that you can do all the things God wants you to do through Christ who strengthens you? Now, I've got you into a trap. You have to agree with me. <laughs> you can therefore be the best Jesus-like friend to that person that they've ever had. I know even Pentecostals say, I can't be that person. I'm just not that emotional. I'm, I'm separate from my emotions. I have to be rigid, otherwise I'm led astray. That's the way my dad brought me up. It was my home environment. I cannot be that sort of friend. I said, hey, listen, you're belying the scripture. You have Jesus in you, and he can change you to be like him if you want. And you can do all these things that God wants you to do through Christ who strengthens you. The guy says, you led me into a trap. I said, that's right. <laughs> ask the Lord to change you. If you have certain hard areas in your life because of your personal discipline, ask the Lord to change you. It's good to have discipline, but don't let them become abrasive to people you want to reach. They need to see the compassion of Jesus. 
Again, referring back to my friend Trevor, he was a real man's man. He was muscular. At 16, he worked out with weights like I did, and uh, he focused it on sport. But there was this compassion that flowed through him. What have you got? I've got a relationship with Jesus, don't you? Well, the visual aid helped me to understand that. All right, now, <clears throat> some practical ways to show that friendship. Very practical, very ordinary. Remember their birthdays. Remember their anniversaries. You can have a birthday alarm reminder. That's what it's called. In your laptop, you put in everyone's birthdays. You sneakily find out their birthdays and put them in. So a day beforehand, or a week beforehand, you can set the, the timing. Their birthday alarm comes up, and it gives you a whole array of little cards. I choose one card. I send the same card to everyone every year because it's a real inspiration. And they're so touched. Dave, with your busy ministry, you remember my birthday. Why not? You're a good friend. Now, there's some people I don't want to send birthday cards to because I don't like them, but um, <laughs> I do anyway because I just want to show <clears throat> that I, I respect them. And, of course, when they're in need, when they're sick, when they've done something so wrong that even their friends and their family have left them, and you go and visit them. I mean, they said, Davy, you know, they, one guy said to me he'd been dismissed from his church because <clears throat> he was suspected of having an affair with another woman, and nobody checked it out to be valid. And I think his wife was just looking for an escape hatch. She divorced him on the strength of a rumor. And it was proved later on that he was right. And they were all wrong. But they couldn't undo the damage they'd done. And I went to visit him. Sat with him on an open terrace restaurant. And he said, Davey, you know, you being seen with me in public is going to wreck your reputation. And I said to him, sir, I have no reputation to lose. My reputation is wrapped up in Jesus. And he'd be sitting here with you. God just bawled his eyes out. I said, I don't care. You need a friend right now. And I believe in you. Well, when it found out that he, he was right, he was actually reinstated. Actually, he moved back into business where he was reaching far more people for Christ in the business world than he ever did in the church. I said, be careful of a church inviting you back. You've got a great soul-winning ministry now. He's a talented musician as well. But uh, his daughters suddenly turned around and they saw what a good man their dad was. The wife had hived off somewhere else, but okay, he had to write that one off. But... Um, you know, there's a guy, somebody, he needed a friend. And I was his friend, and I wasn't going to change that. And I'm just giving you a, a blatant example in that context. And of course, one of the finest helps you can be to someone is bring them to church with you. Now, come on, I'm going to put you on the spot. If this church is good enough for you, and it is, that's why you're here, then it's good enough for all those on the outside that you relate to. Don't leave them out in the cold. I got saved that night in a wild Pentecostal church because of my friend Trevor, because he went there. So I thought, it's good enough for Trevor, it's good enough for me. I went along. They were strange. I thought, oh, these people are educated, all these different languages. <laughs> I didn't know about speaking in tongues. And when the pastor said, Trevor's dad said, um, anyone want to be saved? I jumped up. I said, yes, Earl, me, please. And this old lady across the aisle said, shush, you shouldn't shout in church. I said, shush to you. He asked me a question. I had no idea of church protocol. So Earl said to me, Dave, okay, just give me five minutes. We close the service. Meet me in the little office. And that's how I got saved. But uh, <laughs> I was brought to church. <laughs> Actually, it was a young lady before I met Margarita. 
added with Trevor's influence, they got me to church. <laughs> now, um, some tips about talking to your friends about Jesus. Pray, I've already mentioned this in one aspect, Lord, give me a natural opportunity to start talking about Jesus to the person I meet. Lord, when you give me that opportunity, help me to recognize it and not miss it. And when I recognize it, give me the courage to use it well. Stay on track with that. <clears throat> then share whatever you've got to share, simply, accurately, respectfully. Share your personal testimony. I love Peter's statement. This is the boisterous, impetuous Peter. Calm down and directed now, leader of the local church. Be always ready to give a reason of the hope that is within you with gentleness and respect. In other words, when you share your testimony, that person is feeling bigger, not smaller, respected, not degraded and cut down. Just make sure your attitude's right. You're not putting them down as a worthless sinner. There is someone for whom Jesus died. Value them for that reason. <clears throat> and then, you can time me on this. I've actually got it down to three minutes in explaining the gospel to somebody. And so tell me why I need a relationship with Jesus. All right. These are catchy little words that hinge with each other. It's called alliteration. <clears throat> there is a relationship with God that you were meant to have. And you never be happy, fulfilled, or at peace without it. Now, that relationship with God was ruined. We ruined it when we turned away from Him, rebelled and sinned, and sin separated us from God. And that's why our lives are just full of empty gaps. Because those gaps are there because the things God wants to put there, peace, joy, fulfillment, the insurance of eternal life, are not there yet. Our lives are empty. But that relationship has the potential to be restored. Because Jesus paid the price for all of God's laws we broke. He paid the full account we had with God, which we are unable to pay. His spotless blood satisfied God's righteous judgment on sin. So relationship, ruined, can be restored. And like any relationship, you've got to respond to it. It's a two-way street. You can't have a one-way love relationship. That's heartbreaking. Like Jesus is reaching out and saying, I paid the price for you. I love you. Will you accept my offer of love? Yes, Lord, I do. Will you accept me? We reach back to him. It's a two-way street. So if you put the gospel across simply like that, a relationship with God you need, we've ruined it, can be restored, this is how you respond. If you time me, that took, less, that took about three minutes. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I'm going to show you a little movie clip, and I love this movie clip. Have you heard of the music group called, actually the theater group called The Sidewalk Prophets? You heard of them? Or oh, then you must have seen this one. Just a little bit of love. An example. Touches a lot of people. Even some selfish Christians who, you know, want to live their way instead of God's way. <clears throat> Do you remember <clears throat> a big ship by the name of the Titanic? <clears throat> April 1912. Left the coasts of England on the fateful voyage, and um, out in the ocean, near to Newfoundland, hit a, an iceberg, went down, 2,200 people on board. Only about 700 were rescued, and uh, 1,500 people perished. <clears throat> I've been fascinated for decades about that maritime accident. It was the biggest maritime accident in, in history, actually. I mean, they've been worse since, but 
that got everyone's attention. There was an inquest in Washington, D.C. There was an inquest in Liverpool, England, which was the home of the, the company. <clears throat> and they got together the experts on the tides and the winds and the ice packs and the reports of the other ships. Because apparently eight ships in the huge wider vicinity, um, comparing notes by Morse code in those days. And it was found there was another ship called the Californian with a Captain Lord, that was his surname, L-O-R-D, on board. And he argued that he was at the closest, 32 kilometers away. What's that? Uh, 25 miles away. And he could never have got there in time because of an ice pack that stood in the way. And um, he couldn't rescue them. When they measured it all, they'd found he actually sailed through the ice pack and he was only eight kilometers, five miles away. And he chose to ignore the Titanic's flight, his sister ship, and go the other way for whatever reasons. Those people perished, but there was somebody close enough to rescue them and they didn't have to perish. What I'm saying to you is that many of your friends and family members don't have to perish because someone's close enough to rescue them. You. Now we have another, another short session, but I want to pray for you on this issue right now. Father, I pray for all the families and groups of friends represented here. <clears throat> I pray that through your Holy Spirit working through us and in circumstances and your angelic presence, get around these needy people and use the witness of your children here, their life for Jesus as a reminder, as an example to these dear people who are lost, to turn them around and to start bringing them to Christ. And Lord, please give us the privilege of helping them to come into your kingdom, into the life of the church, and become great witnesses, great athletes in the spiritual race as well. I know you're listening, Lord, because this is deep in your heart is your will. So bring it to pass in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just stand up and stretch your legs for a couple of minutes and we'll come back to the final session. I was ministering in a prison, a woman's prison in Latvia in January 1994. It was a horrendous winter. Minus temperature, snow was about three feet deep. And I'm a wimp when it comes to that sort of weather. Um, and this woman's prison had about 300 Woman, because it was atrocious weather, no work parties could be out of the prison compound that day. So they were all there, and there were different factions arguing with each other while I was trying to talk. I had a nervous team with me. My oldest daughter and my son were there with me at that time. And there was a woman over on the right, my left-hand side. I, I think she was a witch, because there all sorts of witches' covens prevail in a prison situation like that. But she was a ringleader. And uh, she was argumentative and heckling and disturbing. And I stopped a number of times. And I said, lady, please, I've come a long way. And I haven't come here to be messed around by you. Now, if you want me to throw you out and embarrass you, carry on. But I'll not put up with this. And she got a bit subdued. Suddenly I had everyone's attention because nobody ever corrected her. And then she started to rumble again. I said, please. Give me another 15 minutes, then you can have rule your roost again. 
So she quietened down. <clears throat> and um, I finished off the meeting, gave an altar call, people got saved, and now we're not allowed to lay hands on them. These are not celebrities. These are heinous criminals. And uh, they, they'd murdered people and stuff like that. Some of them were waiting on death row because they still hanged in those days. <clears throat> and uh, I finished off the meeting by giving them this little story. It was the last glove I had, and I had children's ministry the next day, and I needed it. And um, people got saved and came up and took the literature, and there was a tug on my jacket. It was this woman. Oh, she stank terribly. Um, <clears throat> she said, can I have that glove? I said, no, you can't. It's the last one. I've got children's ministry tomorrow, and I, I need this. I want that glove. Oh, gosh, she's used to getting her own way. I said, well, why do you want it? She said, the work party's not here today, and they need that message. And I think I could persuade them. Now, I didn't want to part with this glove. I said, what makes you so sure they're going to listen to you? She said, I have murdered three people, and I have respect in this prison. Turned out, I found out later, she was a mafia prostitute. She'd been forced, under threat of killing her family, her parents and her grandparents, if she didn't murder certain high-profile men when they were in bed with her. I didn't ask what her methods were. I think one was she took a long hat pin out of, her, uh, out of her hair and shoved it in through their back into their heart, and they bled to death. One she poisoned. So she said, I've murdered three people. I have respect you. I said, here, lady, take the glove. Take the glove. Go. <laughs> Came back a year later, <clears throat> still thinking about that story, thinking, gee, Oh, I'm not a chicken, or I shouldn't have done that. But I gave it to her. And I looked around for her. She wasn't anywhere in sight. Same groups of people, maybe a few more. And um, she, uh, they, they, they finished off the, the meeting, and same little procedure. And uh, I was, I'm a troubleshooter. My team helps with little counseling sessions through our interpreters, and I step in where I'm needed. And tug on my jacket and turn around a very pretty little lady, Civilian clothes, close-cropped hair, and I said, yes. She said, I'm the lady, Olga, you gave the glove to last year. I said, no, no, no. That lady was terrible. And besides that, she stank, and she laughed. This woman laughed. She said, I am Olga, and she pulled out a very tattered glove. She said, I want you to know that I've led about 200 people to Jesus with this glove. And I'm asking... <laughs> I'm asking, can I have some more? She said, you're probably wondering why I'm not in prison clothing. She said, you know I was in here for murdering three people, but there were extenuating circumstances. I murdered them when I was 17 years of age. I'm 42 now. She'd been there 25 years. Life sentence. She would have been hanged if there weren't those mitigating circumstances. But she said, because of my status here, women have listened to me. And I've been changing. I could see that. I could see Jesus just shining through her. Well, she said, you know, I came up for parole and I was granted my freedom. But she said, I took a look outside and a tour with some of the prison authorities and I was frightened with this new world. It's not the Soviet Union anymore. It's a new nation and it's frightening. And I asked, please can I stay here? And because of the way God has used me to bring peace in this prison, there are no faction fights anymore. I'm being allowed to stay. My cell is not locked. I'm, I've become the unofficial chaplain of this prison. 
And I'm actually allowed out under supervision to two other prisons where I'm leading people to Christ. She said, this is my parish. That was the word she used. And I thought, my Lord. An 85-cent glove, and I nearly didn't give it to her. It became my policy after that. If I'm asked to do something and I'm not sure, I will just do it rather than take the chance of missing out on a great opportunity. Because it was after that meeting, <clears throat> actually she's been, since been released, she was 10 years in that portfolio, and then they released her, and I believe she, I have lost track, but she travels around preaching now, sharing her testimony. What a testimony. Um, <clears throat> that particular time, <clears throat> when I first encountered her, I asked if we could see the prisoner's children. Because it's like an orphanage, worse than an orphanage. Um, after these are single mothers and they have little children brought into the prison. They don't have a budget to care for those children. And they are riddled with lice and, and they, these kids are dirty and unkempt. And they're all little kids, toddlers. And um, the prison warden, Ludmilla, beautiful blonde woman, as tough as nails, chaperoned us, took us around. She said, be careful picking up these kids. You could pick up some of their sicknesses. And uh, she was carrying a little boy around in his pajamas with curly blonde hair. With, she had such heavy spectacles on. <clears throat> and uh, I could see she was getting tired carrying this boy around. I said, Ludmilla, why don't you put him down to play with the other kids? And she pulled up his pajama trousers and there was a metal caliper frame on his leg. He was crippled. She says, he can't see very well and he runs around and trips over things and he gets himself hurt and cries, so we just carry him. And I felt so sorry for this little kid. And I said, Ludmilla, why don't you have his eyes checked? And maybe there's a little bit of surgery that can fix his eyes. And her mouth dropped open. She said, how long have you been coming to this prison? I said, about two years. She said, you know, we don't have the budget to do that. Oh, I felt so bad. I should have known that. I felt so bad. And I said to her, what would it cost? Give me an estimate. What would it cost to at least have his eyes checked, maybe get him some new spectacles? And she said, oh about $45. Now, $45 into Latvian rubles in those days was a lot of money. And I was fiddling in my pocket, counting through the notes, and I had a little more than that money in my pocket, which is our food money for the next few days. I pulled it out and I said, here, take this and spend this on this little boy. She said, I can't receive that. I, I can't give you a receipt. And I said, doesn't matter. I called the pastor. He actually now is the bishop of the Pentecostal Union of the whole of Eastern Europe. Pastor Nikolai Grib. I called him over. I said, Nikolai, come over here. Witness that I'm giving this money to Ludmilla for this little boy's eyes. Well, she was, she was emotional. So I just left. I walked away and I saw the two of them talking, Nikolai and this Ludmilla. And she was gesticulating about something. And I said to him after, what was that about? He said, she is so moved. She said, he said, that's the first gesture of kindness to these kids she's ever seen. And um, she said, I'll tell you what she told me. You tell that man, I'll open every prison, every corrective service, every um, reformatory to that man right across Eastern Europe. And she has. Thousands have got saved. <laughs> because of $45 to help a little boy's eyesight. There was nothing they could do for his eyes. But they did get him new specs. And he could run around. And his leg was getting strengthened. And... Uh, I don't know what happened to that little boy. He was probably put into one of the orphanages or something like that. But it was another thing. You know, $45.
absolutely nothing compared. Look, we, we managed scraping together some coins for food for the next couple of days, but it opened the door for thousands of people to get saved. God was changing my priorities, really. Now, this little grub has uh, some very precious memories. Okay, <clears throat> winning your family. The home is very often a war zone. I was preaching at a big Baptist church at a town called Gympie, about five hours north of Brisbane in Australia. Standing in the doorway, I noticed a very nice Mercedes pull into the parking lot. And I saw a man shouting at his wife, the driver, and turned around and he swatted his son on the back seat across the face. They got out of the car, pulled themselves together, came to church all smiles, and the pastor said, how are you doing, Max? Max said, just great, everything's fine. And I thought, you liar. <laughs> that, that's a picture in my mind of a Christian home <laughs> that shouldn't have been like that. Well, I don't know what carnality operated in that family, but um, the home should actually be a mini picture to people passing by, our neighbors, our friends. That's what heaven can be like. All right, they're human beings, imperfect people, imperfect world we live in, but we're doing our best with God's help to make the home a little bit of heaven on earth. I'm, I'm challenging thing. I'm challenging myself here. Husbands loving their wives, giving her honor, being heirs together of the grace of life. Wives submitting to their own husbands, not somebody else's husband. Children honoring their parents, even if they're not worthy of honor, but honoring them because they are the life source from God into those kids. God showed me that about my dad when he was beating me up. You honor and respect him, even though you think he's not worthy of your respect, because he's been the channel of life from me to you. And when I put my dad in that position, he was now under God's line of authority, and God got him. Wow. Within a month, he got saved. <laughs> but of course, the enemy would love to destroy that. Some practical little steps. I'm going to give you some sentences. Some of you remember this from last time. Very doable sentences. First one, I love you. To be lived out, not just said. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to force it. That love is there. Just ask the Holy Spirit to help us release it. And to show our love and respect, even though others aren't showing it back to us. And of course, our best way of showing our family love is T-I-M-E. Sometimes spent with them. I mean, we're busy people involved in Christian activities. Maybe not your immediate family because they're in church with you, but maybe distant family. Gosh, you're so busy and you spend some time with me. Why? Well, that'll open up an opportunity. Um, <clears throat> our love for our family. I'm paraphrasing now from 1 Corinthians 13. My love for my family is patient and kind. Oh, please help us, God. Never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. My love for my family does not, does not demand its own way, is not irritable or touchy. Please, Lord. <laughs> my love for my family does not hold grudges and will hardly even notice when other family members do me wrong. It's never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. The second sentence is, thank you. Thank you. Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building others up, even if you have to correct let it be useful for building people up. I mean, the finest way to do this, look, things, look for things your family members are doing right and acknowledge them for it. 
I mean, instead of always carping about something one of your family members is doing wrong, that won't change them. They probably do it in rebellion. Start complimenting them for the things they do right. It's like dangling a carrot of reward in front of them, and they'll reach out for that and forget the bad habit that's upsetting you. Try it. If you've got something good to say about someone, don't wait for their funeral. Say it to their face. <laughs> you could get some positive results. Then... How do you feel? James 1.19. And I think this is the most disobeyed verse for Christians in the Bible. <laughs> Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Have you ever read the 17th century nun's prayer? Make a note of it. You'll find it on a beautiful website. It's got a floral, it's a poem, a floral border printed out on a big sheet of paper laminate it and put it behind your bathroom door. So when you're meditating, you look at that poem. <laughs> 17th century nun's prayer. That'll speak for itself. You're going to laugh at this. She obviously was born again, and she knew Jesus. And it's such a humorous prayer, but very sensible. You know, when you listen to somebody, instead of talking all the time, you find out what they're really like. You start to walk a mile or two in their shoes to feel what's happening to them. It gives you an insight to the needs in their lives which you might not have noticed before. Uh, <clears throat> how about sitting down with someone and when you're making plans, could be your wife, could be one of your children, that's obviously involved in the plans but you've never asked their opinion. How do you feel about this? And then zip it up and listen. You are a human being and you're looking with your mindset at one aspect of a project. Other people in your family are looking at it from different angles. You won't be distracted. They might seem to be disagreeing with you, but they're looking at that project from a different angle. Often I have to mediate between husband and wife arguments. And listening to them, I say, you're actually both right. But my wife's wrong. My husband's wrong. No, you're both right. You're seeing the same thing from different sides. If you listen to each other, you'll see a complete picture. Oh, that's a novel thought. <laughs> How do you feel about it? I'll tell you what, my wife hears from God far more quickly than I do. And I've learned to listen to her. Because there have been times she said, David, I think you're wrong. But I'll go along with you and we'll face the consequences together. Well, that makes me stop and think. <laughs> oh, that's subtle, but she's right. And uh, be a good listener. And you'll find out many things about your family that you probably don't know. Give you a point of contact to witness to. How about saying that question to someone in your family who's the world's worst hypochondriac? How do you feel? Oh, well, my arthritis that started in 1932. Oh, no, God, not that again. <laughs> Listen a bit. And I've learned a wonderful way of politely stopping that by saying, can I just compliment you? What do you mean? You've been through all that and more, and you're still alive. You are a marvelous person. Well, they're gobsmacked. You know what gobsmacked means? It's a British term. The gob is a mouth. This is um, common people's talk. I'm slapped in the gob. My lips swell up. I can't talk. Gobsmacked. That, you're stunned. That person, you actually complimented me. I said, man, man you're an amazing person. I mean, you've got pillars of strength in your life because of all you've been through. Well, they're stunned and they've stopped talking about themselves. It gives you an opportunity to say, 
you know you don't have to ever go through that again. Because with Christ in your life, he'll give you the strength and give you victory. And you gave them that opportunity to talk about themselves and it opened the door for the gospel. I've seen pastors see someone coming that's going to talk the hind legs off a donkey and they run the other way. And they've missed an opportunity to say, you know, come on, let's stop the nonsense. Let's get down and let's bring Christ into the situation. But anyway, how about I was wrong? The three most healing words in human language. James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. <laughs> a fault is a weakness. A fault is not a sin. A fault's a weakness that can trip us into sin. Like an example, someone who has a, a past weakness for alcohol. The weakness is recognized. It, if they succumb to it, trips them into temptation and sin, but the fault is not a sin in itself. And if we've got a fault in our lives and we're prepared to admit it to someone we can maybe trust a little bit within our family, I had to do that with my dad. I, for a young Christian, I was very immature. I was 18, then 19. And I developed a very, now I feel bad telling you this, a very superior attitude. Because my folks, my sister, were not saved. And I considered myself superior. And I had a problem, but I had to go to my dad and say, Dad, would you help me with this issue? I said, I have a problem. He said, I know, it's glaring. That's an unsaved man. And I poured out the problem, and I said, can you help me? <laughs> he gave me such incredible wisdom because I'd forgotten he'd once been a teenager. <laughs> and he'd once been a national sportsman and in a number of sports, and everyone used to come to him for counseling. He considered becoming a Church of England priest. But a Church of England, his Church of England priest said to him, don't, Bernie, don't become a priest. You'll cut off the huge market of helping people that you've got now as a sportsman. You'll lock yourself away in a cloister and you won't be reachable by people. He was right. So my dad helped me immensely. Once I confessed this fault, and I'll tell you what, it also operated the next sentence, I need help. Because I was saying to my dad, Dad, would you help me? And it turned around, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here was my dad who had more knowledge than me. And I wasn't submitting so much to his recklessness, but his wisdom. And saying, Dad, would you help me? Well, <clears throat> what happened was, over the next few weeks, once a week at least, there'd be a knock on my little bedroom door. My dad's standing there with his Bible open. I'd never seen that Bible in his hands before. I didn't know he owned one. Dave, I found this verse. Can you explain it to me? And every time it was a verse relating to salvation. It was uncanny. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him. Now, if I'd not gone to him and said, Dad, I was wrong. I need help. I reached out to him. I provided the bridge that he crossed that eventually led to him getting saved. <laughs> And I mean, your family members probably know you better than anyone else, even though they're unsaved. And a little bit of help from them will go a long way for them crossing the bridge that you built to them. And then finally, I forgive you. Wow. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You know what that verse is telling me? Because God has forgiven us so much, we have no right not to forgive others. 
Remember in Matthew 18? About the issue of the king calling his servants to account to pay up their debts. One man owed him the equivalent of $18 million. That was the currency in the time I heard the story. And the man begged for forgiveness because he was about to be sold. And his family sold as slaves and, and his property sold and to pay back a little bit of the debt. The man begged, threw himself at the king's mercy. The, man, the king forgave him. Then he found out through other servants, this man had gone out and found a fellow servant who owed him 100 days' wages. One, $5,000. And he refused to forgive him, had him thrown into prison, debtor's prison. And the king found out about it and called that man and he said, you, he's addressing a man he's forgiven. You wicked servant. I forgave you that vast debt. You couldn't forgive your fellow servant this meager debt. He called his soldiers, throw him into prison. Put him in the hands of the torturers until he pays the last penny. Sure. Actually, Jesus was preaching to his followers when he taught that parable. <laughs> I'm going to say no more. This is dangerous ground. Make sure the issue of forgiveness is dealt with. It's a choice. You don't rely on wounded emotions to forgive someone. It's an act of your will. And this is how it's done. God, I don't like forgiving that idiot, but I make a choice. You've forgiven me, and I don't want to be at fault with you. I choose to forgive that person, and I release them into your hands. It lets me off the hook, but not the person who's wrong. Because it puts them on God's hook and God can deal with them. And I had to forgive my dad before God for beating me up. The third time he beat me up, I was so badly smashed up, I couldn't go to work at the university for four days. And the, when my dad was beating me up, my, my nose was twisted, there was blood all down my shirt and splattered all over the wall. And I thought, this man doesn't know what he's doing. He'll regret this. And the Lord restrained me. Because my dad had trained me in boxing for 10 years. I don't think I could have beaten him, but I was faster. It would have angered him. Probably would have killed me. But I stood there looking at him and I think, God, I forgive him. And I'd never experienced anything like this. It was, it was so tangible. I felt some movement from me like a river of compassion. That hit my dad. It rocked him. I could see the dismay on his face and the fury in his eyes vanished. And he was stumped. He didn't know what to do. In frustration, he turned, opened the door and fell over my mother because she was listening at the keyhole. <laughs> it was so funny watching it. But <clears throat> over the next 10 days, it was very tense. And at the end of those 10 days, my dad came and apologized for what he did. And within a month, he got saved. I tell you, when you forgive, everybody wins. I didn't feel like forgiving. I was actually packing my little suitcase with my only belongings ready to leave. My mother came in the bedroom. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm leaving. She said, please rethink this. She walked out. And the Lord got to me. He said, why are you leaving? I, this is thoughts. I've never had conversations like God, with God like that before. Um, he said, I said, God, I'm leaving. I don't have to put up with this junk. And the Lord said, are you a coward? Nobody called me a coward at school. I knocked out the big school bully when he called me a coward. Nobody messed with me for the next five years. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not a coward. And you know that if this is God. He said, then you'll stay and take it. Because many servants of mine have taken far more than you. 
and I've won through. So I unpacked. I got beaten up again. <laughs> I said, God, this is not fair. It's not an issue of fairness. It's about doing what's right. And my dad got saved as a result. <laughs> we became such good friends. As the years went by, he, when my mum died, he asked me to bury my mum together with a Catholic priest. Found out he was born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. And my mum, we found out, had got saved 36 hours before she died. And she had the sense to call an aunt, Philip Smithers' grandmother, my auntie Marge. And she was strange. She heard voices. She saw fairies and things like that. She was strange, delightfully strange. <laughs> and she just burst into the vestry of the funeral house and said, ignored the priest and said to me with a few cuss words, your mother was a, an idiot. She called me on Wednesday night. My mum died on the early Friday morning. Um, and and, and says, said she, she, she'd given her life to Jesus, whatever that meant. I said, Mary, you, you're a BBBB idiot. And uh, my mum said, oh, Marge, I just want you to know, David's been right all these years and I've been wrong. And I've invited Jesus into my life. I've made my peace with God. Well, of course, the Catholic priest burst into tears. He said, she made it. She made it by the skin of her teeth. <laughs> he said, it changes everything. We re-choreographed the service in five minutes. He said, you preach the gospel and get the people saved. If they object, send them to me. Fifteen members of my family got saved at that funeral service. Notwithstanding, when my dad passed away, I was conducting a crusade in Wimbledon in London. And they let me off the hook. The final three days brought another evangelist in so I could fly back and bury my dad. About 700 people turned out to his funeral. He was still working at 74 for the Mitsubishi Corporation in their their spare parts department. He'd been there for 59 years. Oh, the company had changed names over the years, but <clears throat> um, they closed the factory down for two hours in the afternoon to let the black workers come and honor my dad. I gave an altar call. My wife estimated about 400 hands were raised receiving Christ. I just shared my dad's testimony. Now, way to go. You know, you die and 400 people get saved at your funeral service. <laughs> That's the way Bernie went to heaven. None of that would have happened if I hadn't listened to these words. Nobody would have won. I want to tell you this is real. Now, if you have failed, <clears throat> you've made mistakes, you, you haven't lost the day. You haven't lost the day. If you've fallen and the race has gone on without you, get up and run again. Watch this. I admire that girl's courage. I know athletes, higher profile than her, have just lain on the track, whinging and wailing and allowing, waiting for the paramedics to carry them off. She got up and tried. Top marks for that. She didn't know she'd have the capacity to even finish the race. Because if any of you have been tackled in football or, or rugby like that and you've hit the track, I mean, something happens to the nervous system that the brain just puts chemicals into the blood that makes you want to just shrivel up. And, but she got up and tried. I mean, you notice when the girl behind her jumped over her, her spike cut Heather's cheek open, and she stamped on Heather's hand. 25 meters behind, she got up and tried. Well, she won by four centimeters, two inches, two and a half inches. <laughs> She's a hero. And I, you know, I 
just see the reality of the scripture where Jesus said, the last shall be first. Get up and try. Even if you don't win, you got up and tried. You're a hero. People say, I want, I want that. I want to follow you. Now, you may have fallen by the wayside, made a lot of mistakes, but God's saying you get up and run again. And it might just surprise you where he shoots you ahead and you're in the lead. And you think, that's God. What a testimony that will be. Can I ask you to stand? How about just hold hands with each other? Just reach down the aisle and hold hands with each other. The reason I'm doing that is because you're a team. You know each other. You love each other. I think you like each other. And because uh, liking is uh, an option. We're commanded to love. But <clears throat> these are people that you can help and they can help you. That's what a team does in working together. And I'm going to pray on, over you. And then I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer. Very serious prayer. Lord, I pray for your servants. I pray that you would meet with them deeply and personally now and through the rest of the day as they are thinking through things and you're filtering in and making suggestions and adjustments. I pray that you would put such an anointing on them like they've never known before, an anointing that will obliterate, shatter every bit of nervousness, fear, apprehension, tension about sharing their faith with others. I pray that you would give them boldness, unembarrassed freedom beyond their wildest dreams. And in that calm of that boldness, such a sense of accuracy that they're saying words that are prophetic, that the Holy Spirit's giving them into people's lives, arresting those people and bringing them to Christ. Lord, I even dare to pray that you're going to use these folk in the miraculous. And you'll sneak up on them and operate the miracles through them. And you'll have to be given the glory for that. Pray this little prayer with me, folk. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord of the harvest, I see that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I beg you, Lord, send out laborers into your harvest. Here am I, Lord. Please send me. God heard that prayer, you know. He has seen your heart. Now, even if you prayed that with a bit of trepidation and apprehension, he's still going to take it up. I wouldn't be surprised that today an opportunity comes your way, recognize it and take it. <laughs> even if you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. You can Actually, if you have to go back and apologize for making that mistake, it gives you two opportunities to witness to the person. <laughs> it's happened to me often. And, um, but... Just gently share your relationship with Jesus to those people and sow some seeds in their lives. And they might just say to you, I've been waiting for ages for someone to tell me that. Lead me to Jesus now. Well, take out that little bit of paper and say, close your eyes. I'm going to pray this prayer with you. <laughs> Turn to somebody next to you. Come on, look at them eyeball to eyeball. Okay, now say this lovingly to each other, not belligerently. God heard your prayer, you know. Miracles are already happening in you. And you're going to be God's bright star. You're going to bring many to Jesus. Now just you be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Now give each other a big hug. Go on. 
Folk, if my DVDs outside there on the table can be of any help to you, have a look at the titles and have a look at the back as well, the little summary at the back. Uh, if you can't afford the $10, just for you guys today, take a DVD for you as a gift. Um, the funds I get in for those go to help the orphans, but I want you to have a gift because there might be people here and now you're putting on a nice front arm off in that situation. I haven't got $10 to spend because my budget's full elsewhere. But um, have it as a gift from me. And uh, I know that through you it's going to be a blessing to others. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening and thank you for your friendship. God bless you. Thank you, Lord. Well, I want you to be seated just for a moment. I know we went a little bit over, but wasn't this awesome? Anybody stirred up? I want to give you an opportunity to sow seed into Dave's ministry. And I know you have an opportunity tomorrow and tomorrow night, but I just feel there's some of you are stirred to give right now. And uh, I know we are. So uh, sometimes you don't wait. Stirring's there, do it. And uh, who knows, you might be stirred tomorrow again. But uh, if you want to plant a seed, make the, your check to Church of the Harvest. If you're giving cash, you need an envelope. Is anybody giving cash? We'll get you. Yes, we'll get you an envelope. Anybody learn anything today? Ready to use what you learned today? All right, we're going to pray. If you're writing, let's continue to write. Father, we thank you so much for Dave. Thank you, Lord, for his family and just what a, a ministry and blessing he is to us and, and into the earth, Lord. Thank you for using him in a mighty way. Thank you for provision for the ministry. Thank you, Lord, for resources. Thank you for people ministering and helping the, the teams and the all the things he has going. Thank you, Lord, for more than enough. You're a great God. You're El Shaddai. And I thank you for being more than enough. I thank you that you use, Lord, this giving today, even as a way that we open up and give from our heart and we sow into the evangelist. Lord, I thank you that we reap back a harvest of personal evangelism, being moved to and stirred to bless and touch others for you and to win the lost. And God, we just thank you for that anointing that we demonstrate and release through our giving. We give you all the honor and all the praise in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Give as the Lord has directed you to give. Since you do that, you are free to go get you some lunch somewhere. If you need uh, the sheets that Dave was talking about on winning the loss, we got some up here. And these little small sheets that you can put in your Bible, they're the same thing. It's just a smaller version of it. Go in the grace of God. God bless you. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, 
please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll-free at 866-383-8277.